Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. I know comedians who have a day job who adhere more to the schedule of that day job that they hate than they do to their writing schedule because they impose it upon themselves. And I think there's a couple of blocks there. One is a lot of comedians get into uh, equate comedy with frivolity and therefore they treat their careers frivolously. Hmm. And so it's like, well, I kind of got into this to beat the system. You know, so why would I adhere to a system if I don't want to be in a system? And comedy serious business, man. When you're making yeah. four, th your minimum pay is four thousand a week, writing a, on a late show. Then it's worth. It's you better work your butt off if you want that job. It's it's harder than you think. Hot breath. Yo, what's up, hot breath of verse? We are back with hot breath episode number one nine seven. This is the Hot Breath Podcast, the show where you learn comedy from the pros, and I am your host, comedian based right here in Atlanta, Georgia, Joel Byers, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. This one is going to be well worth your time. The past few weeks, been posting some educational content. I recently posted a Skype session I did, a, a Skype session, a Skype session, yes, a session. I did with Micah up in Charlotte, a comic up there. She was needing help getting a set together before a big show. So if that's something you're interested in, you want to do a Skype session with me, if you're planning a supply to festivals or you just really want to help fine-tune your material or just get advice in general, reach out to me on social media, email me, contact me through my website, whatever's most convenient for you. If you want to work on your material with me, then just hit me up and I'm happy to help. So... We've been doing a lot of writing tips lately, so I figured this is the perfect time to release today's episode. This is one of our longest interviews. This may be our longest interview. So buckle up, take notes, because it's a doozy, because writing has been a hot topic on here. Hot topic, get like hot topic on, hot breath. That's fun, because our guest today is one of the top comedy writing authorities in the game. He calls himself the Joke Doctor. And for over, I think, two or three decades now, he has been writing for comedians like Chris Rock, Jay Leno, and several more. And he's been writing for TV, and he has now just come to Hot Breath to spread the comedy writing gospel. We linked up at World Series of Comedy last year, and I'm just now getting around to releasing this episode, and it could be not better timing. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get right into it. Share this with other comics. Don't keep this episode a secret. The more we can all get better together, the better comedy is going to be for it. So share, share, share when you're out at events. Take notes. And apply the tips today, and you will be a better comedian. So, hopping right into it, as there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Jerry Corley. Thank you so much. You now have your own hot breath water. 
Hot breath water. This is great. This is it. Hot breath. That's cool that you have that uh, everything's branded like that. That's great. You got branding, you know? Yeah, you bet. So, uh, had, had you heard of the show before? No, I had not. Wow, okay. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, cool. This is great. Yeah, it was, it's all comedy mastery. Um, so I know we have a lot of like parallels, so mm -hmm. I didn't know if it had entered your sphere yet. Well, it, it doesn't, uh, it hasn't yet, but it's good that, it's good to see it because, you know, it's, I think synergy is so much more effective than comedian. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so comedians are always so insecure. They're like, I'm not telling anybody anything. Of These course. are my secrets. Yeah. You know, so. You still got to do the work. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, I've, I've interviewed almost 200 comics and some have been more hesitant than others about like, well, I don't want to give away the sauce. I'm like, I mean, they they still have to cook it. Like, right, right. And you can give them the recipe, but it's going to turn out different because it's a different chef. Absolutely right. So it's, I've never really gotten that aspect of like, well, I don't want to give away too much. And most people have been cool or I've coerced them into revealing it once mm -hmm. they're like, oh yeah, they still have to live on stage for 20 years. <laughs> and right, then figure exactly. It out. So uh, let me give you your proper introduction here. Okay. All right. Hot Breathiverse, welcome back to the Hot Breath Podcast. This is your weekly guide to comedy mastery. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers. And our guest today, hot brethren and sistren, this is the man with the plan when it comes to comedy. All right? This guy is a 25-year comedy veteran who has written from everyone, from Jay Leno to Chris Rock to Bill Hicks. Up until he got custody of his oldest son, he was on the road grinding at comedy 40 plus weeks a year. He has now since become, in my opinion, the authority on comedy education and really creating platforms and resources for comedians to learn the tools they need to become successful comedians. So he is the perfect guest to have on here. He just recently started his own podcast, like the right. Stand-Up Comedy Clinic It's podcast, not launched yet. Okay. We're just okay. like you had recommended at the seminar. Yeah. Backlog uh, like 10, 14 episodes mm -hmm. before you put it up. Right? Okay, perfect. So definitely this is one you're going to want to listen to multiple times and share with other comedians. A lot of people out there are attempting to teach this craft, but from my research, he has the best platform. I mean, if you go on his YouTube, he has more hits than anyone else. If you go on his website, he has more resources. So if you're looking to learn about comedy, this podcast is the tool for you. And now our guest, you now know, is the tool for you. So without further ado, welcome to Hot Breath. Jerry Corley, everyone. Jerry Corley. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you did that research because I didn't know that I had more hits. So, oh, on YouTube, good. yeah. Oh, your YouTube page is killing it. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it just started. I started one time putting mm -hmm. out one video, and the video was 47 minutes long. Okay. And it was basically, uh, it was called how to write th uh, how to write 15 jokes in 30 minutes, mm -hmm. and it was uh, based on a headline: uh, Tiger Woods falls out of the world's top 20. And so, and then I just basically showed the process of writing the jokes. Oh. And so it took 40 no editing, it was just there. And I didn't know much about YouTube, just put it up. And now it's got, I don't know, it's got like 300,000 or over 300,000 views. How long ago was that? That was uh, seven years ago. Seven years yeah. ago was your first video. Yeah, first video I put up. Yeah, and now if you, if you even just search comedy, like, you're like the first hit that comes up. Well, that's cool. Anything about how to write a joke or right. how to stand on stage, how to become a comedian, you're the, 
you're like oh, the top nice. resource. Good to good to know. Yeah. Is is there a rivalry within? Because there's some top. I mean, there's some like players and the and names we know, like Greg Dean and Judy Carter. Is there is there a rivalry between? I think that there. I, for me, no. I don't feel mm-hmm. a rivalry. I don't think anybody's my competition, and not to say I'm above anybody else. I think it's. I think you learn. You don't become a doctor from just going to one professor. Mm. You know, and so I have books that line my bookshelves. Almost any book that was written about comedy. Yeah, I have it on my bookshelf. It's not like I focused on one dude and said he's the only one. Mm-hmm. You know, that'd be ridiculous. But it's like even Melvin Hellitzer's book, Comedy Writing Secrets, is which the sort of the, just the absolute foundation of what I started, that was based on Gene Parrott's company writing step by step. Okay. So, but it was more written as a sort of a journalist's point of view, a more layperson's point of view. If you get Gene Parrott's book, he kind of drills down and almost makes it tedious where you start getting, you know, sometimes, oh, there's too much work, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas um, Melvin in Comedy Writing Secrets made it uh, really kind of easy to get into it. And so I found some sort of balance that worked more uh, as a comedian, right? So what I saw that Melvin Hellitzer was doing as a journalism professor teaching comedy writing at Ohio University and what uh, Gene Parrott was doing as Bob Hope's head writer, um, I was like, well, I'm a comedian. I'm taking this stuff, taking it on the road, trying it in front of audiences. Then I would have some theories go out, try it in front of an audience, then write down all my notes. Oh, okay. And so yeah. I sort of have worked, used the road as my lab, you know? And it was just, that's how, and then I realized it was helping other students how good that felt mm-hmm. to see them go up there and make a change to a joke and it got a, a real crisp laugh. And you go, yeah. yeah. And I was like, that's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. So then Booker started putting uh, new guys on the road with me to help them get better. And so oh. I said, this is a lot of fun. And then when I was given uh, that, the custody by my oldest son, and I was like, and the road work just stopped. Like, it was, you know that pattern disrupt you hear in a commercial? You hear that, they build the pace, and the, you have to get up for, and get the kids ready for school. You got to give them to their breakfast, get them, make sure they're dressed, make sure they have enough mittens, and then diarrhea, that sort of record scratch sort of thing. Uh-huh. Well, we hear that all the time in commercials. We hear that pattern disruption used all the time, and so that was my career. It was like things were moving forward. My manager was calling saying, hey, we're booking bigger, bigger rooms. We're, you know, next thing you know, we're going to start doing arenas. Things are really going well. I've got these things lined up for you. And then the judge says, you have your son all, uh, full custody. Yeah. And it was like, diarrhea. And that was my career. Yeah, but he was not doing well in school. And he said to me, I want to live with you. Mom stresses me out. And so I talked to the mom. Mom was like, uh, you know, I, he said, I said, Keith wants to live with me. She's like, over my dead body. I said, it doesn't need to be that exciting. <laughs> and um, so she, uh, she resisted. And I said, well, we'll go to court then. And a judge made a pretty much instant decision. Just spoke to my son and then said, this, we're done here. And you even said you, like, canceled, like, 20 weeks of work, didn't 20, you? Like, you yeah, were just 28 like, weeks this of work I had to life. cancel. Yeah. Oh, my God. Gosh. I remember those phone calls, and as I finished, got through the whole list of people I was booked with. I was like, okay, now what? And I, was, I had a writer's forum at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills. It was just me and first, it's, you know, like 30 guys would get together on Monday nights. We'd eat dinner and then have some drinks and hang out. And I said, you know, we got this cigar room over there that nobody uses. Why don't we go in there and write some jokes? Mm-hmm. And... I got these weird looks, and one guy said, I've had the same act for 25 years. You know, I was like, why? 
You know, why would you do that? It's yeah. so much fun to write a new joke. So um, it started. We started the writer form. It was just me and uh, three comics. And then over a period by six months, it was me and 27 of the comics. They were in the room, and they kept looking to me. I was just doing it as sort of a group collaboration thing. But they were saying, you fix jokes. You know how to fix the jokes. You seem yeah. to know what's missing. How do you do that? You're the joke doctor. You know, and they started, every time I'd walk in, they'd go, hey, the joke doctor's here. <laughs> and that kind of how, is how I got the name the joke doctor, you know? Oh, cool. Yeah. And you I also make the jokes well. Fixing fixing the jokes is how you create tags for like Bill Hicks and Chris Rock, mm -hmm. right? You were like exactly. the comedy store, just watching them, and they're like, "Hey, have you thought of this?" And right. That and also when I was doing my writing um, uh, in the mornings, doing my current events writing, you know, one of the best lessons I got was from Gene Parrott: never edit yourself in the first draft. Mm. And so one of the jokes would be. Uh, deemed racist if I did it, but if Chris Rock did it, uh, it wouldn't be. And the joke it contained the N word. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll I'll say the I'm going to say it without saying the N word because we know what happens when you say things, <laughs> right, Shane Gillis? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so we don't want to, you know. And if anybody really listened to the context of what he said in that podcast, he wasn't saying it himself. He said the people said. Let's put them there. Oh, yeah, but it's... And I was like, forget it, you're buzzwords, done. Buzzwords, headlines. Once yeah. the first Asian superhero now on uh, Marvel, uh, Simu Liu, uh, who's going to be the first Asian superhero, mm -hmm. I think it's awesome. The guy is awesome as an actor, an athlete. He's got a great sense of humor. But he, the way he heard it, he tweeted about it and tweeted at SNL and at NBC... Of course, you've got Marvel, this big film launching, oh, this yeah. movement of millennials who love Marvel. And then they're like, well, we have a choice. I think the optics don't look good here because we're also hiring the first Asian. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, not ready for primetime player, which made me say, really, in 45 years, who's the racist SNL? Right? Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Jim Jeffries brought up a good point of he brought up a character. I think it may have been Mike Myers that played it back in the day, but it was just him, like being exaggerating race, racial. I, I mm -hmm. can't remember what race he was playing, but he he pointed out like three examples of SNL characters who were blatantly racist. Mm -hmm. But in this time, and I'm sure you've seen in how long you've been doing comedy, like you probably wouldn't even pitch this Chris Rock joke anymore. To, to him because maybe I would it's like, I would pitch it right to him but it would be oh, in private like I did oh, before I pulled him aside yeah. so the joke was uh, this is how old the joke is this is mayor uh, this is when you had the those two Ethiopian guys who were taken into custody in by the NYPD and one was uh, sexually uh, abused with a plunger I don't know you don't remember this but it was a big story uh, in the 90s and so NYPD had this racism issue. And I said, basically, um, uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani issued a memo to the NYPD telling them they need to be more polite. So now when they pull you over, they say, step out of the car, Mr. N-word. Ah, okay. Right? And I, I know I could never do that joke. Mm -hmm. I hate that word. Uh, I grew up in, a, in, a, in just this uh, tremendous, tremendously wonderful family, musical theater parents. We had everybody over, and it was like... Yeah, your dad was like a famous yeah, character right, actor. Right, famous character actor. Yeah. And it's like, so I didn't really know there was an issue with different colors of skin until I was much older, until mm -hmm. I was like 10 or 11. But as a kid growing up, everybody was over at the house. So... Mm -hmm. um, 
So when I, uh, when I wrote that joke, I said, I could never do that joke. But uh, Chris Rock could do it because he's working on a piece right now dealing with this very subject. And I was down at the comedy store and I bumped into him. He didn't even know me. I said, hey, man, you don't know me, but I wrote a joke today that would fit in perfectly with the segment you're doing on the NYPD. He goes, lay it on me. And I told him, and I said, it's not my voice. So, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> I laid it on him. He goes, now I see why it's not your voice. Yeah. Did right? you say the word yeah. to him? I said, wow. the, said okay. he goes, and he did the joke. In the main room, it got an applause break, and he says, uh, "And he said, um, you write more like that, I'll, I'll pay you for them. I go, fuck that. You're paying me for that one. I saw the response. <laughs> and he took out 50 bucks and gave it to me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And okay. it was like, that's how, that's how it started, to sort of just write stuff. But I'd listen to Bill. Oh, Bill Hicks approached me one time when I did a segment in my act, and he asked me if he could have it. He said, because it would fit perfectly in a piece I'm doing. And I said, but I, I, you know, respect what you're doing. I don't want to step on your toes. And I go, well, that's, of course, that's not even the funny part. You know, I was a uh -huh. kid and, and he did it and got a big applause break on HBO. And I was like, oh, crap. Yeah, there's it was like more the forgive the me joke, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Where, where it's like, yeah. they're, they're like, you will be oppressed or whatever. Right. It was like, he did this whole religion rant and then he's like, well, then forgive me. It's like yeah. a famous it's joke. exactly what my, when we were traveling cross country, my dad uh, you know, my was met his mother for the first time, and uh, I was a little twelve-year-old punk. And uh, she said, uh, "Jerry, you're gonna have hell to pay." And I say, "What's hell cost these days, Grandma?" Hey, give me three seventy-nine and an eternal flame. Mm -hmm. And she smacked me. Mm -hmm. And then my dad actually took her by the wrist and said, "You will never strike my kid's mother." And she goes, "How am I going to get you know accept this, Pat? If you can't accept Jesus into your heart?" And he says, "Well, you forgive me." You've never understood this. You forgive me. And I did that as a, as a piece. And then that's when uh, Bill Hicks approached me. And I was like, you know, I didn't even know who he was at the time. Oh, yeah. it was that long? He yeah. wasn't even, he was just like a working comic? He was coming up. He was just coming up. It was oh his first HBO gosh. thing when he did that piece. What yeah. was that like being at like the comedy store and being around like the, these are like the 1% comedians, you know? Yeah. This, um, it was, I, was just starting, so I didn't really, I wasn't commiserating or hanging out with any of the guys, but it was just these random, I would bump into people um, and just randomly meet them, and next thing you know, I just started sort of hand off jokes, you know? You became, like, you were almost like the, the joke plug. You could write jokes for people, and you were starting to make money right. that way? Right, and making a little money, and, I would, and then when I'd see open micers, I would just give them jokes. You know, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd listen to their bits and, and, and just write tags and toppers in my little notebook, tear it off, and say, hey, man, that piece you do about the Hummer, I, maybe these would be good tags. And they go, wow, that's really funny. I go, you could have it if you want it. They go, I can just have it? Mm -hmm. Sure, you know, jokes are a dime a dozen. But even the, the Jay Leno job came about, you, you got him on the phone somehow, and yeah. then you just pitch him a joke in the moment. And yeah, then and boom, I can't right talk about it in depth, uh, because oh. I did once, and it got out there, and I got a call. Because when I uh, was fired, I signed an NDA. And so there's a lot of specifics I can't talk about. about oh. the, there was politics involved, and so I'm not, you know. Okay. It's like with, uh, with my movie that I wrote, uh, it was like, there are certain things I'm not allowed to say because you sign these things that say, you know, yeah. anything could be looked at as you disparaging somebody these days. So, you know, oh, I but didn't, it's I so didn't weird. You, well, I mean, I part of me goes, I can either, talk about though. it. Yeah, I got fired because I, th it, they were working on pushing me out because it was, um, 
Well, I can't really talk about it <laughs> because it was a it was a sort of a it was a personality thing in that somebody felt threatened because I was writing a lot of jokes. Because mm -hmm. the guys who trained me, Gene Parrott and uh, Bob Mills, Robert Mills was Gene Parrott's contemporary. Oh my gosh. Uh, and uh, Robert Mills was a, an attorney in San Francisco, and he basically responded to a uh, you know, writing lesson, joke writing lesson from Gene Parrott thing, correspondence course. And then he said, hey, you're not sending me any more courses. He said, you're the first person that has gotten, gone through all of them. So he, he brought him down to LA and got him a job writing uh, at uh, Dean Martin Roasts. And then he got a job writing for Bob Hope. And he's the one that said, he said, I would write for Dean Martin from nine to five. And then I'd write, go home, have dinner with my wife and write a hundred Bob Hope jokes from seven to 10. Jeez. And that opened up my brain. Go, mm -hmm. wait a second, you can do that? You can write a hundred jokes? in a day or in three hours. So I wound up hiring them as mentors and you know, coaches and they would just weekly push me and push me and push me. And so when I started my website, that's when some of these older writers contacted me by email and said, huh. please keep doing what you're doing because the kids coming in these days have no structure. Yes. So that was, uh, that was why I was like, oh, okay, so I'm on the right path. Yeah, and you're speaking of mentors. You also had, like, George Carlin became a mentor. Yeah, what a surprising... So, this was like, this you know, you go, amazing, you go back and way. look at the stuff, and it's like, I go back and say, wow, the universe was just sending me all these gifts. That's amazing. And until I went back and just thought about all these things, I go, holy cow. Uh, I remember uh, this lady who was, uh, she's kind of one of those spiritual psychic ladies, and she said, do you realize all the gifts that were being passed to you by the universe. I go, what do you mean by that? You know, mm -hmm. and she sort of mapped them out for me. I go, holy shit, she's right. Um, so I, uh, what happened? I was doing my first corporate in New York City at um, for Chemical Bank, and uh, my dad's agent actually booked it. He heard somebody wanted something. He said, hey, you want to do this gig? I said, yeah, it's three thousand dollars. So I said, I'll go do it. <laughs> three thousand. Yeah, that was so, like two years in a comedy, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, he, you know, because he knew I had an hour of clean material. And wow. he's like, go do this uh, thing for this bank. And so I go out to New York and I get up the next morning and I'm heading, uh, I, you know, I get up after the gig and I'm going, I go down to the little pad there where the cars come in to take me to the airport. And I'm sitting there and, uh, you know, waiting for my car and it's not showing up and um, there's no cell phones. I couldn't just pick up a phone mm -hmm. and call. I couldn't call an Uber. And this guy goes, hey, you going to the airport? And I turn around, I go, oh, that guy looks a lot like Carlin, man. And so he says, uh, I said, yeah. He says, you want to ride with me, JFK? I said, if it's not an imposition. He says, sure, you look like a nice guy. I get in the car, and he says, hi, my name's George. And I'm like, gulp? You know, my name's Jerry, Jerry Corley. He goes, you any relation to the character actor Pat Corley? I said, well, that's my father. And he goes, well, my agent said I should study him to become a better character actor. And I said, who's your agent? He told me his agent. I go, that's my dad's agent. So we just started talking. Jeez. And then uh, he said, what do you do? I said, I paint houses. I couldn't tell Carlin I was a comedian. Oh, Are you didn't you even kidding mention me? it. Whoa. Well, it came out in the conversation yeah. eventually. Because we're talking. And I go, I memorized your albums, man. Mm -hmm. And I started doing like tracks from his albums. I'm like, wonderful wino in Western Walla Walla. I was doing this stuff. And he's like, how old were you? I said, eight years old. He goes, you listen to my albums when you were eight years old. He goes, yes. And what about the language? I said, my dad said there was, my dad and mom both agreed that there's no bad words. There's just inappropriate places to use certain words. 
because hmm. they're literature people and you know musical theater people and and Broadway people. So in that literature, there's you know profanity. So if you looked at it as bad words, then you would address them differently. And we didn't use them much when we were kids. I would just use them when I was reciting Carlin albums. Mm-hmm. And, they said, and they said, if you have any questions about the, the language, ask us. And so I asked a lot of questions as a kid. And then how did their relationship grow with George? And what was he like? Well, he I said, mean, this... anytime, he said, look, anytime, because um, when we got towards the, I see the sign that said departures, and I said, this, this is going to end really soon. And so I said, you know, what would be your best piece of advice? I may never see you again. He goes, I hope not, you know? But he meant, I hope so, right? right? Yeah. I hope you won't, I hope not you won't see me again. Well, <laughs> whatever, right? <laughs> so he said, uh, he said, I said, what would be your best piece of advice? He said, there's a line, cross it. Hmm. Hmm. That sounds like a metaphor, George. Uh, give me something that's more concrete. You I mean I don't want like? Is that? Did he mean touchdown or line crossing or what does he mean exactly? He said. Uh, he said. You ever read the newspaper, watch the news, and call bullshit? And I said all the time. He said, make that your comedy, but make it funny. Here's a trick: raise the bridge. And that was that means raise your eyebrows when you're delivering something oh. that you're angry about, and it'll change it from you being angry and judging maybe this audience's ideals mm-hmm. to this is absurd. I don't understand it. I'm confused. Interesting. John Stewart uses it all the time, or did it use it all the time in yeah on the Daily Show? He'd go, "This is crazy. Why are they doing this?" I find I have a habit of doing this. So it's just raise your eyebrows instead yeah. and perceive differently. Yeah, watch um, who, who Bill Maher struggles with doing that. He tries to. Uh, he's like, he often gets into weird twitch. You yeah. Know? yeah, so. Did you, get, did you see George again? Yeah. Uh, the next, uh, uh, like uh, two months later, I was in Vegas and he was playing at the Celebrity Room at, uh, at Bally's. And I called the hotel there and I said, uh, George Carlin room, uh, Carlin's room, please. And they put me through. I left a voicemail figuring, ah, oh, he's busy. He, I won't hear back. I go out. Uh, I come back to my room at 5 p.m. And there's a message. It's George Carlin. He says, hey, great to hear from you. Uh, why don't you, you know, come by, see the show. I've left some tickets. We'll call. Uh, and then come back to a- afterwards and uh, please come by and say hello. So I, this, I grew up in the theater. That's what theater people say, right? Mm-hmm. So I got the ticket, and I, I, afterwards I went back to the stage manager and said, George said to come by and say hello. And he said, are you Jerry? I said, yep. And so uh, I went back there, and uh, we wound up talking for about two hours. And I kept saying, am I keeping him here? You know, I don't yeah. want to impose. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, we just talked. He gave me a you know, glass of wine. We just sat and chatted. And, uh, it was just um, a great time. And then we talked about, we started talking about comedy and, you know, some places I would, you know, question and have a counter proposal. Mm-hmm. And he was like, great. And he says, um, and he said, and that's when he said to me, I know with 98% odds that a joke is funny before I step on stage. And I said, how do you know that? Yeah. And he said, because it contains all the elements necessary for a joke to be funny. I said, what are those elements? He said, you're going to have to learn those on your own, kid. Really? And then later on, after another glass of wine and a pain pill, uh, because that was George's drug of choice at the time, he said, uh, I think the reason I said that was because instinctively I know what they are, but I can't verbalize them. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can do it and then come up with some way so you can explain explain it to the world. And I said, I took that as an order. So, of course, you know, if he says and so that. I, that's what I start. That's when I really got into studying. Why do we laugh? 
Yeah, and you're almost like a historian. Like you take it, like you take back your references to like Socrates, and, mm-hmm. yeah. and you go all the way back to like the source code of laughter. And you, <laughs> well, I wanted as a kid, as a five year old kid, I always took apart my toys to figure out how they worked. Right. Oh, okay. So I figured with comedy, I wanted to do the same thing. I really wanted. Why am I doing this? I want to at least feel like I'm empowered to work on apply a. Uh, approach a joke with confidence, right? Rather mm-hmm. than, oh, what do I do? Let me just pray and hope it's going to be funny. Um, so now I can write a joke and know with high odds that it's going to be funny. Cause, and I'll even point out why. Well, because it's got this, it's got incongruity, it's got surprise, it's got this is plausible. And I can put those pieces together and get up there with high confidence and deliver a joke. Yeah, because George Carlin actually had an office that he right. reported to mm-hmm. as, a, as a, anyone else with a job would do. And that, that's, I'm glad you brought up older writers encouraging you to take this approach of technique and mm-hmm. all these different elements of comedy because a lot of, especially now, I mean, I don't know if this is a newer thing or you've always noticed it, but it seems like a lot of comedians are trying to just get by with like attitude and just being like, being like yeah, this is funny because I'm saying it cool, but right, really right. there's gotta be a punchline. Exactly. <laughs> you know, in fact, we can go back and talk briefly about that. So the Leno thing, mm-hmm. what happened was something happened and Leno called me because I sent a letter. You know, my dad said, I, my dad said, send a letter. And so I, I sent a letter. And then... Uh, to the uh, Tonight Show? Yeah, to the Tonight because Show. Because you were feeling... Well, I felt uh, their joke was stolen. You know, oh. verbatim. It wasn't even... It was an evergreen joke and it wasn't even... It wasn't even a version of it. It was verbatim. And I know who did it, and I know who was at the show that night. And then 24 hours later, it's on The Tonight Show verbatim. And I go, okay, that's, that's not cool. Oh. So I, um, I told my dad about it. He goes, write a letter. I go, no, I'm not going to write a letter, Dad. Nobody writes letters. It's stupid. <laughs> so, I, so I wrote a letter. Right. And then two months later, I got a call from Jay. And the whole, the, as I'm answering the phone, I hear this voice. I'm like, what one of my friends does a really great Jay? Of course. And then I realized it was him. And I just said to him, I said, Jay, I've got you on the phone. My job is not to get off this phone until I have a job writing for you. And then that's when you... And he goes, huh, all right. Uh, well, you gotta, I can't do your act. I go, well, you did. He goes, touche. And then, uh, <laughs> and then he said, you got to be up at the current events. And then he said, um, like this morning, Oahu, Hawaii lost power to the entire island. What would you do on a joke like this? Now, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, another gift. Because I was watching the news that morning, and I see him now in his office watching CNN, and the Chiron says exactly what it said at 7 a.m. when I was writing, Oahu, Hawaii lost power to the entire island. Traffic lights were out, court buildings were shut down, and about 100,000 kids stayed home from school today. And that's a three-way buildup. All I have to do is remove remove the third, Mm -hmm. and now I have two. Now I have to disrupt the pattern. And uh, but still, uh, uh, you know, so it's infrastructure, infrastructure, you know, court buildings, traffic lights, and then show something else that's heightened in reality, but still re- uh, deals with electri- losing electricity. So I said, uh, and a vacationing Don King was seen with flat hair. Uh-huh. So and that's when uh, Leno goes, huh? And I said that right on the phone in that moment. He goes, you just thought of that? I go, yeah, I just thought of it. Of course, I had been writing it earlier. Mm-hmm. A lot of comics back then said, well, that was luck. 
I said, that was luck? I said, no, well, luck is opportunity meets preparedness. And because I was writing every day, because Gene Parrott said, treat yourself like a professional now. Hmm. And that means write every day and set it up in your schedule. Write every single day. And I read that Jerry Seinfeld was writing five hours a day. So I said, I'm going to write five hours a day. And so, um, I, and he'd have the calendar with the red X's on every day he writes yeah. and don't break the chain. Break the chain, exactly. So I had that calendar up there. I was doing all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that's what happened. I mean. So then he was like, okay, you got the job? That's on it. On the phone. He, said, We're gonna, he started me as a contributing writer. So they sent release forms that, that day. I signed them, sent them back. And that night I wrote 100 Zachary Taylor jokes. Because oh. it was a big deal. Zachary Taylor, I think, what, 17th, 18th president of the United States, was being, his body was being exhumed, and they were trying to determine whether or not he was poisoned. And so that was a big deal. And uh, so I wrote a bunch of jokes on that and then faxed them over. Now, what I loved about it was the fax, they still had that thermal paper, you know, that slow... Oh, yeah. And I sent 100 jokes on several pages. So that they thought the fax machine was broken. Mm-hmm. And they got my, out of all the jokes I submitted, they used one that day, and it was the more mundane of all the jokes I wrote. I thought, that's not even a good, that's like a transition joke, why would you use that? But it taught me a lesson. On The Tonight Show, they look for middle of the road, uh-huh. because you're trying to respond to middle America, not the coasts. Gotcha. So uh, the joke was something like, uh, Zachary Taylor, 19th President of the United States, his body was being exhumed. CNN apologized for not give, being able to give us pictures of the crypt, you know, because there's a centerfold you wouldn't want to miss. Silly joke. I love, yeah, I love you do it in his yeah. voice, yeah. though, too. I used to, every time I would do a joke, I would deliver it in his voice mm-hmm. just to see if it fit. Did yeah. it fit? Does it fit? Does it fit? And so I would do this, you know, do those impressions of him. And you did that for like eight years? Mm-hmm. You wrote for him? Yeah. After that? Yeah. Wow. So that, that's crazy. It started out with, I guess you were at a stand-up show, and then like the next day you're like, oh, I did that joke at a show, and then now it's on The Tonight Show. Let me write a letter. Now I have a job at The Tonight Show. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's what, you know, it, was, it wasn't even that my old, I just wanted to do stand-up, and I, but I wanted to really write be a good writer mm-hmm. and the best way to do that is to practice the best way to practice is current events jokes yeah because current events jokes you see them every you just take headlines and, and lines in the news and then take some a straight line and try to make it funny rather a lot of people make the mistake of going to the weird news trying to find the weird news that's already funny and you have nothing to do you just state what's weird right mm-hmm. so instead just taking a straight line and then making it funny that's the difficult part so i i definitely want to roll our sleeves up on the actual work of mm-hmm. comedy as well like i want to i want to make sure we get a lot of just the context of your career and just how qualified you are to be the authority yep. you are on comedy but your approach to the work of comedy mm-hmm. is inspiring and like you're talking about oh i'll just write for five hours a day because seinfeld said but mm-hmm. I mean, I've gone through phases where I'm like, I'm writing every day and this is great. And then it's like, you miss one day and then one day turns into a week and then a week turns into a month and then it's a year. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, where'd my writing habit go? Like, exactly. what, what kind of tips do you have for comedians to start that daily ritual? We all know we should do and we all feel better when we write, but there seems to be a block with us just staying consistent, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's with everybody and everything. Like, if you're a, like, if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger or The Rock, 
he's in the gym every day. That's what he does. It's mm-hmm. like his religion. It's non-negotiable. And when I decided I was going to write, it was going to be non-negotiable. I had to get every day. I had to be in that seat. And it was like, I know comedians who have a day job who adhere more to the schedule of that day job that they hate than they do to their writing schedule because they impose it upon themselves. And I think there's a couple of blocks there. One is a lot of comedians get into uh, equate comedy with frivolity and therefore they treat their careers frivolously. Hmm. And so it's like, well, I kind of got into this to beat the system. You know, so why would I adhere to a system if I don't want to be in a system? And comedy serious business, man. When you're making yeah. four th- your minimum pay is 4000 a week writing a, on a late show, then it's worth, it's, you better work your butt off if you want that job. It's, it's harder than you think. Um, but, you know, so if I get up every day, and my, that my day is basically I, I make my coffee, I sit down with my laptop, open it up at the kitchen table, and I'll say, okay, I'm going to look for 10. Uh, I'm going to look for, I'm going to start with three headline jokes. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just take three headlines. And with those three headline jokes, I'll usually write, say, 15 jokes per headline. And that, that gets me started. Okay. And so then, um, and that'll be, uh, then I'll be like an hour and a half in or something like that. And then I'll write some more. And I might get inspired to go off on a different place. Sometimes I sit down and I go, okay, today I'm going to do, I assign myself like on a certain day. So I'll assign myself today's cliche reformations. So I'm just going to grab 10 random cliches that everybody's familiar with. And that can include book titles, movie titles, um, slogans for corporations. Uh, I'll just write those down and say, okay, I'm going to write some takeoffs and some reformations. So a reformation is taking the first part of the cliche and then coming up with a second ending, right? So uh, it's like W.C. Fields. If at first you don't succeed, our brains are running, try, try again. Mm-hmm. And all, you, all he says is quit. There's no use killing yourself over it. So finding a cliche and finding a second ending. So then I'll do a few of those. And that'll just, or if I do one, also I'm, I'm inspired. Because there's some days you wake up, you don't, you don't feel like it. Exactly. And so if I do one or two of those, I'll be like, wow, I'm feeling like it now. I feel inspired because I came up with one joke. Uh, one joke okay. can change your whole viewpoint of how you feel about writing today. You just have to show up every yeah. day. You just force yourself. And we're, you're talking about a five-hour habit, but would you start off like, okay, I'm just going to sit down and write one joke every day. And then it like grows into, oh, I wrote one. Now I feel like writing five more. Mm-hmm. Like you just kind of yeah, small it started, goals type deal. In, in fact, that's what Gene Parrott said to me. Sit down, write one, one joke a day. Next week, change it to three jokes a day. Next week, double it. Go to six jokes a day. Because if you could write three, you could write six. Mm. It was tough when I started hitting 18, then 30. And I was like, I'm tapped tapped. He goes, push yourself. And then I got past 30 to 60. And then, then all of a sudden it just grew. And every threshold I hit and passed it, I knew if I could pass that one, I could pass this one. And so it sort of became like uh, trying to be a, a, an athlete towards your writing. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to push myself further. And if you're not sitting down every day, pushing yourself to get better, you're not improving. We see comics do this all the time. They plateau and they sort of stay the same with no reinventing or no new discoveries. As comics, they're just the same, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how, are they, how do they expect to get better if they're not doing anything to improve? Are you improving the amount of mics you're doing? 
uh, per week? Are you improving the amount of jokes you're writing? Are you trying to come up with fresh stuff? Are you replacing the mundane jokes that get mediocre laughs with laughs that get you know real punches and applause breaks? If you're not effectively doing that, you're not really doing anything to get better. Mm. It's pushing yourself past your comfort zone. So that's, uh, that's kind of what I try to do. How would you overcome writer's block? Oh, there's lots of cool things to overcome writer's block. First of all, there's like uh, cliche reformations. Those are fun, mm -hmm. right? Wordplay. Just taking 15 random words, and you can go to a w website that has a random word, word generator, right? You just Google random word generator, and I'd write 15 random words and come up with alternate meanings for those words. Just that process sometimes, it's not even thinking about being funny. It's just, here's an alternate meeting, and all of a sudden an idea comes to you. Oh, crap, I can use this for this. You know, say the word peace, you know. Well, peace, uh, would you like a piece? Uh, well, would you like a piece of what? You know, and all of a sudden now there's a, a potential for uh, most comedians think, think cynically or, or sexually. So peace could be piece of ass. So if my wife says, cutting some cake, and she says, Jerry, would you like a piece? I said, yeah, then I'll take some cake. Mm -hmm. You know, and now... I re oh, I didn't realize that before. And it becomes like something called frequency illusion. You know when you buy a car and then suddenly you see that car everywhere? You thought the car was unique. Everybody has this car, right? But it's like now you understand that you can take a meaning of a word and come, with, come up with alternate plays on it. Because you now know that's possible, now it starts, and you start to practice it in your regular interaction uh -huh. with your comedy buddy, your sister, your brother, your mother, your, your wife, your husband. You, uh, you now, now are training your brain to recognize that opportunity. Yeah, like, <clears throat> I, like, I guess as comedians, we, we're like, I got to write down and write my genius bit today. But it's almost like taking us, if you have writer's block, take a step back from your material. Just write something silly. Just write play around. Write something silly, simple. Some of the best jokes are the simplest. Mm. Anthony Jeselnik. Everybody loves... Most comedians, let me just say, most comedians love Jeselnik. Oh, he's a genius. Look at the structure of his material. Very simple. Set up an assumption, shatter the assumption. Mm -hmm. and, but he does it with his character, his persona, his through line. That's, he's dripping with this sarcasm and mischievousness that it's almost like he's pranking the world. And it's like, he's just this little shrewd, sly guy. He's like, <laughs> I'm gonna play a trick, watch this, you know? And it's, that's what makes it fun, you know? So, um, you know, one of my favorite jokes is like, he says, you know, uh, there was a, they were these kids were playing hide and seek in my neighborhood and one kid they found three hours later or three days later in a refrigerator. And everybody's like this heaviness, you feel that heaviness and he's like, yeah, but who else could say they died a winner? And I'm like, <laughs> it's such a positive note. How could you not be on the side of that joke? Right? Unless you're the parent, I guess. Right? Yeah, and that's, that's a specific style. You know, and one of my favorite comics, it was like Ronnie Dangerfield, Mitch Hedberg. And when I actually started, I was one-liner. Mm -hmm. I was like a one-liner comic, which I think is a great place for comics to start just to understand the mechanism of building an assumption and then breaking it. Mm -hmm. And Ian Edwards was on here, and he, he broke down a one-liner and then how to expand that into like an actual like five-minute bit from just one Should line. Should get rid of this and use this? Oh, you can stuff. have whatever you want. Don't want to have the brands on. <laughs> and the book I got, it was actually a Greg Dean's book. Um, yeah. So that was Greg was my first down. teacher. 
Oh, so you took yeah. classes from yeah. Greg. Greg was my first oh, teacher. Snap. Yeah, he was the one that taught uh, the setup and assumption, shatter the assumption. Exactly. Yeah, that was. And the I was book. like, that is uh, wow, and that opened up my eyes to mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. And then, uh, and then as I, I wound up sort of being an assistant in his class. So I was, I would record his classes and sort of trade that for tuition. But oh. I was uh, in his classes for a while. Oh. And then that, um, uh, and then it just, I felt I learned as much as I could. And then he sued you. And then he, and he threatened to sue me. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he threatened to sue you. He threatened to sue me. He said, um, he said uh, he, when I was starting to put up my blog and put up my YouTube videos, um, he called me and he said, um, you know, I'm going to sue you. I go, for what, Greg? He says, you're basically copying my book. I said, you show me anywhere where I plagiarized anything you have put in your book. I'll share it with my attorney. And then... Um, if she thinks it's anywhere close to being plagiarism, we'll take it down. And uh, he stopped bothering me. But he was like, he's, well, you know, two dissimilar ideas converging. That's mine. I go, you know who initially came up with that? Aristotle. You know, and he's like, what? You know, and I said, and then James Beatty in 1476, he was a, he was a philosopher, coined that as well as being a definition of a joke. And he's... I said, have you done your research, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's like, so for you to say you own it, it's like you saying you own this is like Ford saying they own the internal combustion engine, mm. you know? It's like, it's like uh, if uh, Microsoft owes uh, IBM a bazillion dollars because they're the ones that came up with, uh, you know, the initial computer, right? So it's, it's you can't, um, and then when, uh, what, Microsoft came up with icons, clickable icons for, to, uh, to execute programs, uh, Apple sued them and said, that's ours. Oh, wow. And, the ju- and a judge determined you can't, you can't really patent a concept like that. You, know? it's, you can't say, hey, because we use little icons to, show, uh, to, su- you know, to f- support letters, that oh. that's, a, that's, that's a patent. You can't patent that. See, so it's all cool now, I guess. Well, I try to make it cool, right? Uh-huh. I try to... You know, every time I do a, a seminar, I always mention him, that he was my first teacher, right? And I, I tr- because I try to promote synergy. Because, again, somebody can go to him and maybe get just a different version of something and go, oh, that flips the switch. Because it's not about me. It's about somebody learning this amazing craft, right? So if, uh, if because they heard something from him differently and all of a sudden it opened up their world, that's a win, you know? It doesn't hurt me. It makes them better. So if I was part of that journey, that's a positive, right? So anyway, I do sort of that thing. So here's what happened. I'll give you a little Dean story. Yes. Greg does a lot of passive-aggressive. Let's call it passive-aggressive okay. behavior. And plus he's got – the reason why I stopped studying with Greg was this. We were in a class, and this student was having a hard time. He was trying to talk about his father. Obviously, clearly, by the look on this guy's face, he was having a difficult time talking about his father, and there was some rage there. And he was having a hard time, and Greg kept going, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? And the guy you could see was getting visibly ragey, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "This okay, Greg's working beyond his credentials right now. So I tried to diffuse it. Now, Greg had this list of all these emotions, right? And I said, hey, Chuck, what one of these emotions or two of these emotions fits the scenario of the story you're talking about when you're talking about your dad? And he goes, this one and this one. 
I said, why don't you say those and then, and then execute them, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't use the term execute when he's that close to rage, right? So he's, but he said, um, he said, oh yeah, and he said the words, which got a chuckle in class, and then he, you know, did sort of an act out. And he got an applause break in class. And Greg shot me daggers, man. Mm. And after the class, he was just raging at me. How dare you usurp my authority? I was like, what? It's not about you, man. It's about this guy, right? This guy trying to have a breakthrough here. We got a breakthrough. It's a win. But he wouldn't let it go. And so I said, no more. Uh, this guy's nuts. That was and it. so that was it. I wasn't going to, I didn't go to his classes anymore. And then, um, so then, uh, um, uh, what were we, t- were we talking about? What? Greg? What, uh, Greg. What was Greg's the next story? Oh, the Greg story. Then, for, uh, on a fluke, we were at the World Series of Comedy, and I was teaching a seminar, and Greg was scheduled to teach a seminar. So I was teaching on Tuesday, and Greg was teaching on Friday. So I teach my seminar. Then um, afterwards, uh, after a show, uh, Greg uh, was tr- mingling, trying to mingle, and he's a little awkward in his mingle. Uh, but um, uh, the student comes up to me, one of my students uh, comes up to me, and I, evidently he took a class with Greg Dean too. And he goes, hey, how are you? And he goes, uh, you know, so, you know, you know, remember I was your teacher. He goes, uh, and, he, and the guy just literally says, well, I study with this guy now. And Greg got all kind of weird, right? Uh, and then uh, Jim Barnes had a great set, gets off stage, and Greg Dean comes over to help him, you know, give him some tips and stuff. And he says, well, you can come to my classes. He goes, well, I study with Jerry Corley. And Greg got all upset. So Friday rolls around, and all these people now start, after Greg Dean's seminary, come up and start talking to me. And I go, what's going on? And they say this. They say, Greg got up there, first of all, just talked about himself for 15 minutes, and then basically said, you guys know Jerry Corley? And everybody's like, yep. He goes, I taught him everything he knows. And then, so that's what he said. Now, I thought it was funny, right? So uh, that night, uh, Saturday at the finals, uh, everybody's there, right? All the judges and uh, for the finals. And uh, I get uh, Joe asked me to close the, the segment so the judges can tabulate the scores. Mm-hmm. So I go up there to do 10, 15 minutes. And I open with, uh, our, at, uh, like maybe my fifth joke in, I say, I have five kids. Because normally I say I have five kids because I'm only half Mormon. And I say, well, I have five kids because uh, evidently Greg Dean also taught me how to fuck. Hmm. And the place explodes. <laughs> in the back of the room while the comics start laughing and they just started clapping and Greg goes uh, uh, Joe goes that wasn't really necessary it was absolutely necessary necessary. absolutely necessary (laughs) and did he say anything to you after that nothing that that was probably your last but he did reach out to me uh, just recently he sent me a uh, he just sent me a note and he said uh, hey I got this uh, on this website I found that this guy was copying and pasting segments of my book and I found this uh, from your book and he said uh, you may want to give him a call and I said well thanks so much for the heads up Greg okay maybe you're finding your way to being okay with the fact that nobody's taking anything away from you <laughs> you know and it's like there's lots of teachers in LA and I yes. don't worry about any one of them you know, because my only focus is putting out the best content I can for people to learn. And a lot of other people are learning about how much money can I make. Yes. If you put your mind there, just like you mentioned in your 
uh, podcast about my focus is not about making money. It's about putting out the best content, putting out the best value for my listeners. Mm -hmm. And that's where things come back to you. It's a, it's a long-term game, not a short-term gain. Yes. And if that's what you're in it for, because I am, I mean, I love what I do and I love uh, helping people and I'm going to continue to do it until it's, until I can't do it anymore. Because I enjoy it. I enjoy watching people transform. I enjoy getting, having somebody deliver a bottle of Maker's Mark and say, thank you for my career. That's an amazing feeling, mm -hmm. you know? So it just feels good, you know? You almost feel like it's your, you helping them get that laugh. It almost feels like you got the laugh as mm -hmm. well like yeah. when you see it. Right. Because I, 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 I dabbled with teaching some, and, but it, it came down to, and this, this all happened like this year where I was like, oh, I'm going to start my own comedy school and like really, like really start to help people teaching comedy. But then I had to take a step back because I was like, I've never been afraid of work, but it's like working in the right direction. And I saw myself, I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, this is going to become like my job. And I, was, mm -hmm. and I had to be like, well, why did I start comedy? And I didn't start comedy to teach comedy. I started comedy to be a great comedian. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I'm had that realization and I still help people and I, I love, I mean, if people ask questions, I'm more than happy to answer them. But as soon as I closed the door on building a comedy school, like three months later, I'm taping my first comedy special. And then next month I'm going on like my first solo tour. It's like, as soon as I closed that, that comedy teaching door, now my career opened up. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Do you find that in, in your even just life experience that you just have to assess first, why am I doing this? And that can almost become like your guiding light in a sense. Well, I found out for me, what happened with me was, um, I think there might be some, there's definitely some value in that focus, uh, laser beam focus on what you're doing, what mm -hmm. your intent is. I think what happened with me was I had, um, I had this vision of what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to be a, first of all, as a comedian, I wanted to be a triple threat. I wanted to be able to sing, dance, and do comedy. That, oh. my, I'm very old school. I studied tap. Um, I, you know, I, I used to close my big, like when I did my hour and a half show, I would close with um, singing the Star Spangled Banner as a character named Fritz the Freedom Fairy, which is a character based on my best friend from New York, who's a New York City firefighter that came out of the closet about 15 years ago. And um, so I do this whole thing because he's, he's sprinkled throughout the act. And the whole act is really was just a story. And it wound up, people used to come up and say, I love your message. And so the message seemed to be tolerance mm. and across races and across sexual preferences and all that. And it just sort of, because that's the way I was raised, you know. I was raised, my dad raised us with a philosophy of, wouldn't it be great if we could take care of everyone? We can't, but wouldn't it be great so that's kind of the way we were raised. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of the through line of the act, it turns out. And, um, but because of the, the singing and all, but it was so, I had multiple, so in my a pursuit for comedy, I thought not only do I want to do stand-up, I also want to be a really good writer. Mm -hmm. So I can increase my revenue streams. Plus I was acting, you know, so I was able to, I was doing commercials and then, uh, as, as I was writing my comedy, I was dabbling in, in screenwriting. And then, um, and that's how, you know, in dabbling in screenwriting, I wound up uh, writing uh, the movie Stretch um, for, with, uh, um, with um, uh, Joe Carnahan actually has a screenplay by credit because that was the deal in getting the film made, hmm. um, which was interesting. Wow. Because, uh, but I still say, 
I've got six drafts of the motherfucker. So I, <laughs> when I say I wrote it, I wrote it. And then um, uh, my boy uh, uh, Rob Rose came down to L.A. and, and wrote, it, uh, wrote versions of it with me, too, because he's a, the, the fun, fastest, funniest guy I've ever met. And uh, then when we met Joe, Joe loved it and um, uh, basically sat down with us, said, we're going to get this film made, uh, but here's the deal. I have to get screenplay by. Oh, my yeah. gosh. We'll make your movie if you say it's by me yeah. and not you. Yeah, basically. Oh my now, gosh. I had an NDA with that one, too, and I'm not supposed to talk about it. Uh -huh. But the company I signed the NDA with was dissolved to form another corporate company so that they could fight, fight paying us residuals. So oh, I don't have the NDA now with that one. They don't exist. So do you have any other NDAs floating around? Sounds no. Like well, anytime, usually anytime you do a script with a company, you have oh. to sign documents that okay. say you won't disclose, won't disparage, won't, you know. And I don't talk bad. I, you know, Joe did great things. We, we made a movie. And a lot of other filmmakers I talked to said, first time you do something, you're usually going to get fucked. And so mm. um, when I was talking to a, a good friend of mine, Dave Connolly, I was complaining about getting fucked. And then he sat me down with another writer who wrote some pretty substantial films and who was not, hadn't had a hit, hadn't had a movie sold in a while, but we had lunch together. He goes, I would love if I was getting fucked right now, you know? So I was like, <laughs> I guess I want to get fucked. It's a good so, problem to have, I guess. In fact, when we sat down with our meeting with Joe, I brought a brown paper bag and inside the paper bag was lube and condoms. Really? And you know, I just said, be gentle. What? Yeah. That, that was it. <laughs> but we got a film made. And, yeah. and, and so now that the film, the film got made, uh, other doors have opened. You know, people see you as legit. Uh, this one producer from Marvel met me because um, his wife was in one of my showcases. And he says, uh, he basically said, hey, yeah, I'm a producer from Marvel. I'm not looking for any scripts. And I said, I don't need to give you a script. I got my own. And he goes, tell me more. And so I told him, he goes, Stretch? He goes, I just watched that with, with Jessica last night. I love that. You did that? Oh, wow, we have to talk. Cool. And then he came into another one. He's like, so uh, do, you have any, uh, do you have any comedies you're writing? Because uh, I do uh, things on the side. I do under 10 mils. You know, that means I do uh, with uh, production budgets of under 10 million. Mm -hmm. Now you have a producer asking you for something. Mm -hmm. So I was like, sure, I'll when I write something marvelous, I'll make sure I get it to you. You know, and then I walk away. I don't stay there and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I just walk away. You know, I act like I'm my own entity, you know, without, I'm not begging for a job sort of thing, you know? Yeah, and it's important, I think, that you're like, I want to be more than just one thing. Right. And in researching you, I heard you say comedy or comedians should think like entrepreneurs. Without a doubt. Please expand on that. Well, we don't. We think like broke comics. We think for like sure. broke artists. It's a mindset for and sure. And when I learned, well, I tell you what, I was, when I was doing my stand-up, um, I was also teaching comedy traffic school, and, which is a group. I recommend this for any comic who really wants to have a captive audience. Mm -hmm. First of all, you're working as an MC. Um, you're, you have to get a state-mandated mandated curriculum out to, the, to this group of people while making it humorous. What a great training ground for eight hours. So I was doing this, and I know it was going well because there's a, when we'd have like a Wednesday, Thursday evening class, the second night I had a dude show up with his wife. He goes, I brought my wife. I go, why? It's date night. This is a, a traffic school, you know? He goes, yeah, but it was so much fun last night. You're cool with it, right? I go, sure, bring her in. And so um, uh, it was whatever, it was, uh, I was obviously getting laughs, and they were still learning the material. 
And so uh, that for me helped me to uh, branch out to doing warm up for television shows. Oh. It's perfect, same thing, mm-hmm. uh, basically. And then uh, what I did was I was I had this guy in one of my traffic schools who was president of the Chamber of Commerce. And he came up to me and he said, I'm the president of the Chamber of Commerce. He was there for rolling a stop sign. And he said, um, we do an annual dinner. Every chamber in the United States does one of these where they swear out the old officers and swear in the new. I would love you to MC it and do 30 minutes of stand up. I'll pay you $800 and give you beer. And I was in college at the time. And I thought, broke, you know, and I thought, beer? I'm in. And um, so I did, did the event. It went really well. I got a videotape of it. I hired a videographer, right, which was 600 bucks at the time. Investing in yourself. And uh, so it was, I made $200 total on the mm-hmm. gig and got that video. And then two weeks later, the neighboring uh, city's chamber of commerce called me and said, uh, hey, I heard you did a great job over at Chico. Would you come and do ours? How much do you charge? Me, I thought the going rate would eight was 800. I didn't know I could negotiate, so I took the gig. And I thought to myself, how many chambers of commerce are there in the United States? 7,650. Uh, and I had to go down to the library to get that data because we didn't have the internet back then. Mm-hmm. And so I, I basically got a database for 200 of them in the region of Northern California sent out flyers via fax with me at the dais at the Chico Chamber of Commerce saying, um, change your annual dinner to an event. Hire a professional comedian to MC." And I got uh, a bunch of phone calls that came in. I booked 28 in a three-month period, all at $800. And I said, I've got a career. I've got a business. And so that's how I started, going out and doing corporates. I love the catharsis of doing the clubs, but the clubs don't pay like corporates do. Oh, no. So then I was able to up my dollar amount for other corporate events. And then I said, what is the Chamber of Commerce? It's an association. How many associations are there in the United States? Too many to count. But according to one of the databases that track associations, there is like uh, 2.3 million. All wanting a comedian to do their event, they just don't know it yet. They don't know how it fits. Hmm. But with the Chamber of Commerce, since I knew they did annual dinners, and most, most, most of the time they can't find the person that really wants to MC it, that's their pain point. And so I offer a solution to the pain point, just like every commercial does, right? Mm, you know, pain yeah. point, pain point, pain point, solution. That's how you sell something, right? So um, just, and when I was becoming a comedian booking myself, I got a sales um, kit. You know, how to, be, how to be a good salesman, because I knew I'm going to have to sell myself. That's, I hate sales, but I might as well learn the techniques. Entrepreneur. And that helped me to, book, that helped me to book a lot of stuff, and that helped me to get a, get a manager and agent, because I was already working. Mm-hmm. You know, I went in and showed them how much I'm working, and they said, yeah, we want to sign you. It's funny you say <laughs> Chamber of Commerce, because I did a Chamber of Commerce event last year, and you're making me think, I need to email every Chamber of Commerce in the region now. About, you can easily, because I yeah. did that one. They need to know, but if they know where it fits, uh-huh. how does it fit? How is it a solution for us? Because if you just say comedy, they're like, okay, what comedy? Where does it fit? But if you find a place where it could fit, like MC for their annual dinner, 
that fits. What if, and so I said, hmm, what can I do? And I read this thing in a business journal that said the California companies, small businesses were facing you know, $28 million in settlements, legal liability settlements for sexual harassment lawsuits. And so I came up with a 20-minute routine on how to alleviate sexual harassment mm. or how to recognize it and alleviate it uh, you got to know what it is first before you alleviate it. Um, and I prepared it a humorous sort of thing, a comp basically a stand-up act with a, with a speech, so information-laden with a lot of humor points built in. And then uh, uh, did a, uh, offered a free luncheon to the Rotary Club. And they had me in. I did a free, I said, the caveat is don't tell anybody it's free. And so I, I delivered this 20-minute thing on tolerance in the workplace and pitched it from the angle of pain point $28 million in liabilities. How many of your small business owners are prepared for this? Um, I can deliver this thing on, on, on uh, alleviating sexual harassment in the workplace by developing tolerance. And so I went up and delivered this thing, 25 minutes. They loved it. 15, 20 people gave me business cards. Hey, we, gotta have, we have a Christmas party. We have a golf tournament. We have a this. We have a this. And I booked all these gigs. So they came to me with that. You know, It sounds like the entrepreneur comedians thinking like entrepreneurs means think outside of just the comedy club structure. Yeah, like absolutely. Where else can you apply this public speaking skill? I mean, mm -hmm. starting your own show is a way, Yep. but also finding there's events everywhere. There's birthday parties, there's family reunions, mm -hmm. like think outside of, we get, there's the old school where like, but you got to rise the ranks of the comedy club. But it's like the business of comedy is way beyond just trying to MC feature than headline a comedy club. So far beyond, in fact, and, and just a little uh, note, I don't say any of this to brag uh, because money to me is just a result of you doing something positive. Mm. It really is. I and mean, I think if you keep it that way, you never have the ups and downs of success and failure. You have the joy of doing the work for the mm -hmm. sake of the work. My dad taught me that as an actor uh, and it, I live by it. So in this case, word got out that I was teaching comedy. There was this doctor in my one of my lots of my classes. He loved what I did, and he gave the word. He gave the word to the director of Kaiser. Director of Kaiser for West LA called me and said, "Jerry, um, I'm thinking about. I'm doing a seminar where I'd like to teach doctors to use humor in the workplace because I want their clinic to visit, visits to be more like you know house calls." Uh, can you help doctors develop a sense of humor in the, in the clinic visit? I said, that's right down my alley. And so we had a couple of phone calls, and he said, how much? I said, $5,000. He said, no problem. He said, I'm going to run it by the board. First he said, is that all? And I went, oh. If he's like so, 5,000, yeah, no problem. Yeah, so he said, oh, that's just for me showing up. <sighs> right, uh, yeah, right? yeah. I can't change it then. But what happened, they passed on me. So... Three days later, a week later, I get this call from this guy who's, uh, they, and he called me up. He said, you know, they went with some mucky muck from Cisco or uh, Toxin from Oracle and all these big companies. So, um, but uh, his name is Dan something or other. So this guy calls me up named Dan saying he needs help on how to use humor. Uh, can, he, can I coach him on that? Because he's got a speech for Kaiser. He's talking to 200 doctors in the morning, 200 in the afternoon, and they're paying him $40,000. 40? $40,000. So I said, I can help you with that. He goes, how much is, will that cost me? I go, $5,000. Because I wanted to make back the money I lost. So he agreed, 
And he was miserable as a student. He was arrogant. He refused to adapt things and learn. He, uh, Jerry, I don't need to self-deprecate. I know I'm very knowledgeable, uh-huh. and I research my stuff, and I'm good at what I do. I said, but you're talking to doctors. They need to know that you don't feel you're superior to them because mm. they're mm. doctors. So if you self-deprecate just a little bit, they'll trust you more. He still refused. I said, you know what? I can't work with you. So just give me half and good luck. Six months later, I get the call from the director of Kaiser. He said, uh, that guy, um, he didn't do so well. Uh, so he, wasn't, uh, he didn't live up to our expectations. Do you still, are you still willing to come help us out with this event? Uh, yes, sure. Is your fee still $5,000? I said, no, sir. It's now 40000 And he said, I'm just curious. Why is it more? Uh, I said, well, because you, uh, you worked with a guy and he didn't do it for you and you paid him 40000 He goes, how do you know? He called me up for coaching and he was miserable to coach with. He goes, ha, 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 I, I, can, I can see that. He said, I have no problem with the price. In fact, the board might like it more because that sounds more, more legit to them. Mm-hmm. And that opened my mind to how we think about money and how other people think about money. Comedians think about money as like, as, oh my God, I got a piece of gold. I'm going to hold on to it forever. Right? Because we don't, there's not a lot of it going around. Yeah. But these guys think of money in a whole different way. Dropping $40,000 for an afternoon? Wow. And then what they were trying to do is get this to go national as a program for Kaiser. So they were in contact with the director of National Kaiser, who's in Hawaii, and then what happens? He now retired, so it's kind of a dead issue. We'd have to reignite it and get it back going again. But if you can, you know, think, I, I had no idea I could ever get paid that much for one event. It never, you know. And when that happened, I went, that's a whole new world. They right? probably passed on you because it was so low. They're that's probably, right. This exactly. guy's not legit. Right. Exactly. Wow. 40, and it gave me a whole different way of looking at it. We think if somebody, if, we're, if we quote too much, they're just going to run away. Mm-hmm. And then, no, they usually counter because they're not as emotional towards money as we are. Yeah, we're like, oh, $50 and chicken wings? Okay, yeah, f- yeah. how far, yeah. five-hour drive? Yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, that. I'll do it, I'll do it yeah. for the experience and the mic type. Of course. And I did a lot of that stuff. Always, you know, I drove for, you know, just to have the, get the mic time somewhere, encounter a new booker, do something for free. Oh, of course, you know? yeah. I used my, uh, cause, well, because I had kids, I used the, the uh, sort of the, my tax refund, which was usually about somewhere around $4,000, and I put that into a travel fund, and I'd use that money to go, uh, I would book one-nighter gigs and fly to the one-nighter gigs, and then in the breaks, I'd, I'd map out and do, uh, uh, I'd call up and set up guest spots at the A-clubs and sort of use that, be like a salesman on the road, mm-hmm. you know, and I, you know, if I can go there and, wear, and do a guest spot um, for free and show them my wares, you know, Hey, here's my vacuums, you know? Good idea. So it's basically thinking like an entrepreneur and uh, and think about this as your comedy enterprise rather than thinking as a comedian with your... It gives you a whole different level of commitment to it, too. You're not actually sitting there with your hat out. You're sitting there with, with a... As a business person, you know, saying, we have a mutually beneficial business arrangement Mm -hmm. rather than, please, I need the gig. You know, it's just a, they look at you differently when you approach it like that. And I think it's important comics understand, get funny 
first. Like mm-hmm. have have a have a product to sell. Mm-hmm. Don't try to just jump in and like I want to make five grand. It's like we'll have a show worth five grand. Like, yeah. get to, funny first and then start selling. Yeah, you have to develop that. You have to develop that act. Yes. And like you said, the the fundamentals of all comedy is based on the one and two liner joke. Mm. When you can master that, then your stories automatically become funnier. Because what is a story made up of? Sentences. Every sentence is a setup. Gives you an opportunity to now treat that like a one and two liner. Come up with a quick quip or two or three, and then and then continue with the story. So if you're writing the story, you can go back through your story and go sentence by sentence by sentence. Sid Caesar said a joke is a sentence with a curly cue. What is every story? It's made up of sentences. So if you go up and take each sentence and can tag and top each one with something, or maybe not each one, every third one. And then now you have a bit that's humorous overall, but you have jokes on the way to the big, to the big uh-huh. joke. So that's, you know, tags and toppers is the way you get more laughs per minute, you know. And it's right in the story, not trying to be funny. Right. Write it as is and then go back through and mm-hmm. start to Yeah, the intent the is to get the, let me tell you about the arc of this story, right? Uh, so it has the five elements of story, uh, setting, theme, plot, character, conflict, and then you have... Uh, and then, so you're telling the story, the who, what, where, why, when, and how, the moral arc, and all this stuff. The moral of the story is. And then, so you have this great story. And then, you, but you want to, it goes on forever with no laughs, but you can use technique to drop it in. You know? gotcha. yeah. One of the techniques is ask each sentence three questions. One, is there a double entendre play? So is there a word that has an implied meaning I can possibly turn to a comedic meaning in this sentence? Just to get a quick quip. You know, I came home from work last night. My, you know, it was the night before my wife was scheduled for C-sections. So I come home from a gig, and she's laying on the couch watching TV. I said, hey, babe, how you feeling? She says, I'm having some gas pains. I, say, like, I said, well, everyone is. It's like five bucks a gallon. But, and I continue with the story, right? It's just a quick quip on the way to the bigger story. And so I continued to tell the story. But every line gives you something you can play with. Mm-hmm. Then if there isn't a double entendre play, you can say, are there two dissimilar ideas converging here? So I can do an incongruity joke with this. Um, so if there's nothing, if that's not available, then you could say, um, is there an assumption in this setup that I can shatter? I'm teaching my son. I'm home. I'm teaching my daughter how to tie her shoes, you know, which is weird because she's 17. And, you know, you're just a quick quip Break the on the assumption. way to the big joke. Mm-hmm. So it's adding more stuff. And that's just three structures. Then if you add cliche reformations, you force an analogy in there. Uh, that's how Bill Burr builds his entire act is through analogy, is mm. likes taking two dissimilar ideas and saying they're similar, mm. which sets to the audience an illogical equation. Uh, my girlfriend's like a smartphone, huh? Right, they're asking, they're sitting there with tension now saying, solve that, how is that true? I'm curious. Yeah. And all you do is solve for true, and the secret is it's got to be true for a s- smartphone all by itself or a, per- uh, a girlfriend all by itself. Because if you had it if, it, if the verbiage that you come up with as the tie-in doesn't match a person or a girlfriend, then it's not going to work. It sounds forced. It's going to be odd. But if you say, my ex, like I say my ex, it builds more of an antagonistic situation. I said, my ex is like a smartphone. At any given time, I can usually find her at at least one bar. Mm-hmm. And that's, what a coincidence. That's so true. But that fits for a person or a smartphone. 
one bar being the signal, of course, right? So, but that's just by listing everything smartphone, right? So I was going to ask, how do you find the connection between the anchor and groupies? Yeah, so you take, you basically take, if I decide to use smartphone, say if I want to use, sometimes, uh, in this case, what I'm doing is I'm taking an element and comparing it to my wife, rather than finding traits about my wife and then finding the element to relate it to. Like if I, my ex-wife was an alcoholic, right? So I said, uh, so I, I played on that angle. I said, what else is alcoholic? What else is alcoholic? And funny cars. Funny cars are alcohol-fueled. Oh. So if I say, my, my ex-wife, yeah, my ex-wife, she's alcohol. She's like a funny car, alcohol-fueled. Now I have a quick joke there, but I'm working the other approach to it, the alternate approach, finding what is she like and then finding something to relate her to. Uh -huh. This way I'm taking any element and comparing it to my ex-wife and then listing everything I can think about using uh, subcategories of people, places, things, words, phrases, cliches, events. And, and I'll write that down, people, places, things, words, phrases, cliches, events, every single time I do a list to remind myself. Because when you're so close to it and you're going through the list, sometimes you just get too heady. And I'll go, oh, I didn't do any cliches here. What do people say when they say this? What people are involved in a smartphone? Mm -hmm. Can you hear me now? That guy. You know? And I'll just write down everything I can about a smartphone. Uh -huh. What else in smartphone in the minutia? The signal. What about the signal? The bars. Hey, what are some of the phrases? Hey, my phone's only had two bars. Bars, bars, double entendre. That's a bar. Could be a drinking establishment. Fits from my ex-wife. Now, because my ex-wife's like a smartphone, you know. At any given time, I can usually find her at at least one bar. Uh -huh. Same phrase fits for a phone. See? Wow. That's how that. That's and you. You kidding? Bill Bar. Bill Bird uses analogy. That's what he uses through his whole thing. Once in a while, does a cliche drop in? You know. So it's a, you know, like we, this thing about this girl he was dating being aggressive. You know, she's aggressive, you know, she's like, I want you to choke me. I don't know if I'm comfortable with this, you know. What if I choke too hard? You know, what's, what's the pressure? What's the PSI? You know, what is that? Eh, I don't want to choke too hard. Like, then she's like, I want you to take me against my will. I was like, what is this, 50 shades of rape? You know, <laughs> and he does that joke. Of course, our brains are wired to create expectations uh -huh. since we're children. Very yeah. definite expectations. Yeah. So think about it. We, you don't have to rush to a punch because the audience, their brain is already creating an expectation. You know, we don't have to, you don't have to do it. it it's so firm. Uh, you go like, um, uh, so if you say in your head, Fifty Shades of, that was such a popular book and movie that people are already creating the ending. So all you have to do is switch the last word. And it fits the scenario of him being uncomfortable because he's like, force you, you know? Mm -hmm. you know uh, it's like, take me against my will. What is it, Fifty Shades of Rape? Mm -hmm. And he gets a quick joke there because he shattered an expectation. And plus it's familiar. And oh my God, <laughs> so funny how that fits into this place right here and we didn't even see it coming. Yeah, and okay? you have, you, you're going through like a checklist of all this and you have like nine, there's like, Nine elements? There were nine la psychological laughter triggers. Okay. Nine stimuli that the brain respond to um, that triggers laughter. Okay. Surprise, embarrassment, superiority, release, configurational, incongruity, recognition, ambivalence, and, uh, and coincidence. Uh, did I get all those? That's about nine. Uh, sometimes I forget, right? So then there are 13 major comedy structures. And so uh, the structures pull the triggers. Okay. So, and not... 
every joke just has one. Some have multiple. One, some have ones where you're like, oh, well, that's kind of this and this. You know, this is compare and contrast and uh, this. Yeah, it can be both. Just like you'll have literary uh, scholars arguing over whether something really fulfills the obligation of meeting complete irony, you know? Same thing, you know? If you, uh, you don't have to, it's art. So, and also you have to remember as Picasso said, you got to know the rules before you can break the Boom. rules. Boom. You know, it's an art. Yes. So don't get all wrapped up and it's got to be this way, you know. Yes. But a lot of times you can tweak and go, oh, if I do make it this way, that joke snaps, right? And that, that's what part of comedians trying to just get away with attitude. They're not mm -hmm. learning the rules first before they break them. Right. They right. just see like, Bill Burr's just up there talking. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, he's worked over half his life at this art form, mm -hmm. you know. And he says, the first five to seven years of my career, I did one and two-liners because I had to know oh, how to write a joke. Yeah, yeah. and that, yeah. that's what I did too. When you know how to write a joke, when you're on, on the move, when you're in the flow, mm -hmm. it's easier to see the opportunities or recognize the opportunities and the mechanics and the structure to be able to spin something and go, oh, I just put two ideas together. I'm gonna now list real quick and put it up. Oh, there's the... Yeah. Here's the line, you know, when he does like, go, he was like, everybody wants to bang a hot chick, you know, but uh, you know, the, the guy working at home, home Depot can't cause he's not a celebrity. Besides chicks don't dig lumber, right? That's what he says, that's his joke. And it's like, all he did was take something from Home Depot. Yep. Every time I see the name, if somebody says Home Depot, I see a pallet of two by fours. And he says lumber and boom, that triggers that image and it makes us laugh, what a coincidence. What were the 13? 13, if we go into 13, we have double entendre, okay. we have uh, incongruity, we have uh, uh, paired phrases, we have simple truth, we have recognition observation. Mm -hmm. So observation takes the recognition laughter trigger and you just basically observe the world and basically explain what it is, like okay. somebody waiting for a bus. They stand on a curb that's seven inches high, waiting for a bus that's 16 feet tall. And they sit there looking for the bus, they don't see the bus, so they step off the curb, losing seven inches, then they raise up two inches, losing a total of five inches to see a bus that's 16 feet tall. If you can't see it from up there, you can't, you're not going to see it from down there. Mm -hmm. And all you're doing is taking an observation and stepping it out for the audience. So that's ob And you know, comedians should have a goal of every week, write down five new observations in the minutia of what's happening in life. Good, and so good. it's just, you set yourself goals. So you're always walking around with comedic glasses. Mm -hmm. Then you have... Um, then you have, uh, so paired phrases, comedic irony, paradox, um, ambivalence. Uh, you don't have my list in front of me and I just got lost. Oh, you're and, fine. Uh, but it's like, there's, so there's 13 that you can use. Simple truth, very simple. It's like double entendre, but it's a phrase that has uh, an intended meaning. You find it a lot in songs. We speak in metaphors and euphemisms. And all you're doing as a comedian, it's all in having your cynicism, proving it wrong. I'm gonna show you that's wrong. So somebody says, uh, like a song, you go to Disneyland, you hear it's a small world. Have you listened to the lyrics? It's a world of joy, it's a world of tears, it's a world of hope, it's a world of fears. Isn't this a song about being bipolar? Hmm. And all the audience goes, oh my God, I never thought about it that way, it's so true. Because you're taking that simple truth and you're flipping it. Scripture right. has a lot of symbolism. If you take that and now go to the liter literary simple truth meaning, you can get a joke. Its essence and its foundation goes back to, call me a cab. You're a cab. 
Mm -hmm. Right. So call me a doctor. Is there a doctor? You know, call me a doctor. You're a doctor. It's that same raw form, but now expanded out to other things that we see all the time. You know, so uh, that's a uh, you'll notice that John Stewart, people say you want to take your comedy to the next level, start to recognize comedic irony and um, also a paradox that makes your brain actually do a dance. Paradox is two things that could be true, but not true at the exact same time. For example, when Carlin used to say, on TV, you could say you pricked your finger, but you can't say you fingered your prick. It's prick and prick. Mm-hmm. Two different meanings of prick, they can be true for each of their meanings, and these, but they can't be true at the exact same time. And oh my God, you use them so close together. You know, one, they're same word, but so different. So the brain does a little, oh wow, that's interesting, you know. Uh, so that's paradox. So there's lots of so many different ways. Ambivalence. You can build an ambivalent situation and make sure you have two descriptors in the in the in the uh, in the sentence. This is where specifics are important. And comedians sometimes try to be too economical and they remove a potential for a joke. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I say my dad was just diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Not a lot of opportunity there. Well, fuck my dad. You know, uh, I can add that attitude, maybe hope for a laugh, right? But what if I added more of a descriptor? My dad, who lives in Bakersfield, was just, let's say, my dad, who lives in East St. Louis, <laughs> just, got, just got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Horrible, right? He lives in East St. Louis. Yeah. So we have, we're supposed to be tra- traumatized over the colon cancer. But, oh, my God, he lives in East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. You know, Esther, my son, who je- my son in Jersey, just came out of the closet. Oh, oh, that's weird. You have a son who lives in Jersey, mm-hmm. right? So it's like t- using ambivalence quotient. Supposed to be upset about this, but instead I'm upset, I'm upset about that. Gotcha. So that extra descriptor helps you get there, mm-hmm. you know? That's another technique you can use. Yeah, and is there... Are there resources like this for this on your website as well? Yes, lots of them. Okay, so, cool. And on the YouTube channel. Here's what's... You want to okay. hear something really cool? Oh, yeah. Master's series. You're familiar with the Master's yeah, series. the Master classes. Yes, they're yeah. great, right? Ron Howard does one. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin Steve does Martin. comedy. Blow me away. Steve Martin was my favorite guy when I was in high school. So was Jerry Seinfeld, right? So, and I, you know, of course, I disagree with Seinfeld when he tells people you can't teach people how to do comedy. Um, but he still, he was my favorite. He's still one of my favorites. Uh, but I disagree with you, Jerry. I'm writing an article. It's going to be called The Big Lie Jerry Seinfeld Wants Everybody to Believe. I mean, there's, there's techniques people can use just like, I think, learning an instrument, but not everyone's Jimi Hendrix. You know? Right, exactly. But people can learn the basics of it, but to what degree does if, come down to some natural they, ability. If they practice and practice and practice and practice, this has been proven now. There's a book called Peak, written by Kay Anders Erickson and Robert Poole. And they're psychologists, and they've been studying for the last 30 years the psychology of mastery. Huh. And what they did was, was they studied like violinists what separated the best from the best of the best. The best of the best practiced more and had more expert feedback. So that's what real practice is, is practice with expert feedback. So when you take, say, Jerry Seinfeld wrote five hours a day always was at the clubs. Bill Burr is always at the clubs mm-hmm. doing his thing. He's always there. He's always working at least one, two, three shows a night, right? So Emma Willman went for, in two years, um, 
I I met her. I coached her a little bit, and she got on Stephen Colbert last yeah, year. She's been on here. She mm-hmm. uh, she's awesome. Yeah, and she uh, she was also coached by Gabe Abelson, who wrote for Letterman. She was looking to get better and better, mm-hmm. and um, she got on Colbert. But when I met her, she sent me a video of her. I go, "You're so good. Why are you coming to me?" And she said, "I want to get tweak it so I can get on a late show." And I said, "I can help you with that." And then she said, um, "I said, how did you get so good?" How long have you been doing it? She said, two years. Wow. How did you get so good? 14 mics a week. Yep. Plus that ex- being open to notes, being open and seeking out expert feedback. Yeah. So that's the key. So uh, Kay Anders Erickson says anybody can master anything they want. He firmly believes that because the brain is highly adaptable. And so it's like, wow. Now, I've seen people, I've taken people who are absolutely unfunny and now their friends call them funny. So it's very interesting. This guy, Brano Galusia, Croatian, right? He goes, my dad, my father used to say, don't laugh, it makes you look stupid. So I was never funny. So now I have nephews and they're funny and I want to be able to keep up with them. Can you help me? He showed up my class regularly. He was an adult school teacher, right? And it's like, uh, and he started doing mics around town eventually and people saying, you're a really good writer, you're really funny. Then he was on campus uh, at, uh, at his school, and he uh, was with other teachers, and he saw a poster on a kiosk. He goes, no, that's really funny. And they go, what's so funny about that? It said, domestic violence workshop, Wednesday, February 14th. Mm-hmm. That's hysterical. Mm-hmm. Why is that funny? Give your wife a Valentine's gift. Don't punch, don't punch her in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes, that's incongruity, right? <laughs> And so I was like, see, now he gets it. It's hilarious. You know, he can drive down the street and go, oh, look, uh, authentic Chinese cuisine, se habla espanol. You know, yeah, he right. now sees, he's identifying this because now he's open to it. Right. Right. Yeah, now yeah. he's not Jerry Seinfeld, but he's, he's certainly a whole different person than yeah. he was. He's now got a sense of humor mm-hmm. that he didn't have before because he didn't recognize what triggered laughter and how to apply it. But you, you got to do the work. Ooh, man, like, without a doubt. And he did three years. He ooh, came to every class. Okay. Three years. Plus, English was a second language. So we had another barrier. Yeah. You know? But he said, I'm going to learn this. And he just kept applying himself, asking questions to the homework, all that stuff. So the master class. Steve Martin said, was interviewed one time. And I followed Steve forever. And he's, he was interviewed one time. Are you going to get back to stand-up? And I said, God, that's the question I've been asking. And he said, no, it's too hard. Then when I found out he was teaching this master class on comedy, I go, well, what's he going to teach if it's too hard? Mm-hmm. So I got the master class. I'm watching him basically talk about, did you watch it? You know, so I'm watching him talk about being, you know, just his life and comedy and everything. And he goes, and you want to learn how to write, go to this website and look at the 13 comedy structures. And it's my fucking website. No. I was blown away. Students started to call me. Hey, my God, Judge Steve Morton's Masterclass says you has your website on it. They're using you. Go to your comedy structures. What? Blew my mind. You didn't even know? How humbling is that? You didn't even know. No, nobody you just asked, started no. getting pinged. Just started getting pinged. Yeah. Dude. That was really kind of a humbling experience, man. That almost brought also tears to my eyes. Honor, yeah, it was I was an honor to be like, Steve Martin, my, my idol when yeah, I was a kid. Steve, Steve's like my favorite, too. It, oh, I almost like I almost like teared up at that moment. It was like I don't know so why. Like, crazy. It, I teared up when I heard about it. Like, oh, oh my God, my, my favorite comedian in the world. You know, I was like, you, did, you know, that's so awesome. I wanted to tell everybody. It's incredible. But, yeah. So that's, that was really cool. Dude. 
So, <laughs> and all of it was just is just focusing on trying to give people the best tools. Yes, that's it. If you stay focused yes. on the intent, whatever rewards come to you. I mean, that reward, I can't put a dollar amount on that. Mm-hmm. Like my idol, comedically, just referred them to me when it comes to writing a joke. Oh my God! Right? How amazing is that? And so that, and then, but every time somebody says anything to me, the, the compliments I get on, on YouTube, somebody put on there, you're the goat, you know? And I had to look up what goat meant. Right. Why are you calling me a goat? I didn't know what that was. And so, um, and anytime somebody gives me any kind of compliment like that, that just reminds me I have to work harder. Mm-hmm. Because now I got a bar to uphold, right? It's yeah. like, and it's like, thank you, that's nice, but that just means I have to work harder and keep keep working and keep helping and, you know, run into somebody experience a, uh, a problem. How can I help them solve it? And that just helps me get better too. Yeah. I think intent's super important because with, with me not taking the comedy school route, I, the red flag was my intention is to literally just like make money. I was like, I'm literally only doing this because it's been my primary source of income for the past few years. So as soon as I let go of that, those almost constraints of like, I gotta make, I gotta make this work cause I gotta make money because I did, my parents were teachers and I do enjoy helping people, but releasing the class helped me to realize, oh, but this podcast is helping people. Mm-hmm. And when I'm at shows and Absolutely. people ask me questions, that's, I'm helping still people. helping people, right. but the intent is to now do this to help as opposed to like, I, I got to do this class, but then I got to do this workshop too to supplement it. Like, you know, right, as right. soon as I released, realized my intent was not in the right place, then that's when the career just started to open. I mean, you always have to keep the lights on, you know, it's of just course. like, but it's, it's, if that, if the money is your objective, if fame is your objective, that's so fleeting, you know? Yes. And it's not um, sustainable. Either. It's not sustainable. You wouldn't be as successful as you are if you were just like, oh, let me just hoard all the comedy secrets and make yeah, it. Why? It's not, it yeah, It doesn't do anything. It's going to help everybody. I mean, people get better. There's more funny people out there now, mm-hmm. you know? Because uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, most people don't, that when you laugh, your brain releases the same exact feel-good chemistry we release when we fall in love. That's powerful. Yeah. Right? It's also the same chemistry if you shoot heroin. Mm-hmm. But it's true. It's the same exact hormones are released when you laugh. So manually or spontaneously. So you can chemically change your mood if you're in a bad mood just by making yourself laugh for one to two minutes. I mean, chemically. I mean, that's a, like taking a drug. And it's better than, than a drug So because it's more sustainable. But what I found in... I've just started to put a more personal spin on my comedy in terms of like, I've been working hard. And yeah. You become an st- asshole. Evidently. Structure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. They'll, they'll hear the seminar. Uh, the podcast seminar I did here at World Series where I got heckled and called an asshole and all this. I don't know where that came from. Sarcasm. Really I'm man. so glad you were there Probably because you though. called him dad. I called him dad sarcastically. But and why? I mean, I said, comedy club guy. You should it's know. Like, it's incredible. And yeah. So, but what I found is when I've become more personal, people have started to come up to me like telling me specific jokes as opposed to like, oh, you were funny and they can't remember anything. As soon as I started to make it personal and have an emotional connection, they were able to come up and be like, oh, that's just like my wife or my dog. She treats our dog like that. Or my grandpa Mm -hmm. said the same thing Mm -hmm. to me. And you mentioned in the the Greg Dean story that you were you helped that comedian inject emotion into it. Because for a lot of years, my comedy was more surface and it works because the math adds up. 
But I well, feel like in the all fairness, layer, I, think, I think Greg Dean was trying to help him inject that emotion, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he was yeah, running yeah. into a block. So I kind of distracted him and showed him. He, he couldn't label it. So I said, what about one of these words here? And that snapped his brain out of this sort of intensity. And he was like, well, oh, these two right here. Okay, let's see if you can make that, that happen. Yeah, that's what I was trying to steer you into is, so we're, we're saying comedians need to learn the structure first, but then how do they start to inject that personal touch, I'm that so emotional touch? I'm so glad you touch? brought that up. The best piece of advice I got comedically as a stand-up was from an acting coach. Mm. And I studied in uh, Lee Strasberg Theater Institute in L.A. And some, oh. of, the, some of the intense you know, acting schools, uh, my dad was an actor studio guy. And um, uh, so I was studying with a teacher named Lelia Goldoni. She was unbelievable because she never let me get away with my bullshit tricks mm -hmm. you know because those were my defense mechanism trying to hide the fact that I feel vulnerable and put up this defense mechanism like I'm you know all you know my humor I'm, I'm in control and uh, teaching me that I am perfect in all my flaws so show your flaws no, no problem with that because people now connect to you she goes secondly when I did five minutes for her in front of the class the jokes mechanically were sound. I know they were good jokes. They laughed. I got laughs. I was like, ha, showed her. Mm -hmm. She sat there with her arms folded, her legs crossed, and she said, oh, look, Jerry thinks his jokes are so funny he doesn't need to perform them. <gasps> and I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, I don't know how you feel about any of that, so I don't care. Ooh. Humans connect through emotion, Jerry. Go back home. I want you to write down how you feel about and play the emotion. Make sure it's authentic through each of these lines. Connect it to the environment. Connect it to the pictures. In fact, don't even think of the emotion. Think about the colors and the textures and the sounds and the smells of the events you're talking about. Automatically, the emotions will come to you. Whoa. And so I practiced what she said by at the same time rolling my eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll show her. Right? And I go back. And I said, I'm just a, my dad always said, anytime an acting teacher gives you a note, don't ever take offense to it. They're not saying it because they dislike you. They're saying it because they want to help you. And that gave me a whole different perspective. So somebody gives me a note, I never say, ooh, fuck you. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Always follow up with a question or two. It'll help you to clarify what they mean. So I came back and delivered it the way she said. And holy shit, what a difference. Applause breaks on jokes that I just thought were funny. Yeah. But all of a sudden people, oh my God, and what you said exactly happened to me. Oh, my brother does the same thing, or my father, you know, it's like the same thing. And I was like, now you're affecting people, you're not yeah. just making them laugh. Yes. They're leaving me with an impact. How did you... How did you inject that emotion? You said you think about the smells and senses? Well, or that's what, one that of the process? lessons in acting. Instead of just trying to play sad. That's so general. Sad. What do you mean sad? Distraught? You know, upset? What? But if you remember the smells, textures, and the scene about where that emotion is connecting to, that's when the emotion comes out. Okay. So you're not just playing the label of an emotion you're playing an experience. Hmm. So it changes the way you play that experience. It's like when, when I, I coach actors sometimes on self-tapes, and a lot of times they're de they deliver the lines looking at the character all the time. Watch real actors. 
they'll look at the character maybe 20% of the time, especially if they're talking about an event. The event, we go somewhere in our eyes to the event in our memory, and then we check in with them once in a while. So if you're really remembering an event or substituting a real event in your life for that character, you're gonna, that emotion's gonna come to you. Mm. And as comedians, we get good at this because we do it every night, expressing ourselves over a certain uh, subject or emotion or something. If we can play sarcasm, we can play, uh, we can play retaliation. Benign retaliation is another structure, very important structure. Probably a great structure to open with because okay. I call it the perfect joke form because it's got an antagonist and a protagonist built in. So you can say that, like when people say, hey, you're a comedian, tell me a joke, I always tell them a joke. Because if I just say, I don't do jokes, I do stories, <laughs> what are the odds of them coming to any of my shows? Right. Zero. Right. But if I give them a joke, that was funny, where are you playing? Here, uh, there's an app on my phone, I open it up, it's a form, they put in their email, they hit send with their first name, they hit send, it goes, they automatically get an email response what? that leads them to a, a two or three minute video. Here's a clip, you know, enjoy. What's then the I'll app? send them something else. I just use, uh, I use MailChimp. MailChimp, oh, the And app I create a link, uh, and I have it on my Evernote, and I just hit that and it opens up the website with that form on it, oh, that's and awesome. they put it in. And I say, I'll invite you to a show, and it's my fan list yeah. uh, uh, thing. Well, this happens all the time. Oh, you're a comedian? Well, tell me a joke, and I'll tell them a joke. The joke is usually my ex who cheated on me called me on Halloween. She's like, Jerry, I don't know what to pretend to be for Halloween. I said, why don't you just dress normally and pretend you're in a committed relationship? <laughs> and they go, well, that's funny. Where are you playing? <laughs> right. And it's that simple. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's rather than, I don't do jokes, I do stories. The reason most of us say that is because we're not prepared yeah. to say a joke. Why not? You know, how many people have come to see me based on that? You know, probably hundreds, you know, based on meeting people and them asking to be on that list, you know, by saying, hey, tell me a joke. You know, so I just rambled. No, you didn't. No, that was all relevant. Mm -hmm. So with the, was there anything else with injecting emotion? You go to the place or you bring in a parallel experience to find the emotion within yeah. the story. Don't joke chase the emotion. Don't. Sort of let it come to you. Okay. Really just say, you know, oh, my God. Let me tell you about this. My... My ex, she's like, uh, she's A++, you know? That's the, that's the positive way I tell my kids, you know? <laughs> she's, she's fucking nuts is what she is. Mm -hmm. But she's, all I'm doing is I'm picturing her, picturing those situations, gotcha. how does she make me feel? Sometimes she gets me so fucking frustrated. And I'm just not afraid to share that with the audience. Mm -hmm. That does take practice. Mm -hmm. And that comes with learning to be yourself the way you are with your friends at a bar on that stage. Because we tend to... I want to put on my best self on the stage rather than I want to be completely vulnerable and be the same guy I am at the bar on the stage. And that's why I tell the audience, I'm like, I'm so flawed. You know, I got baggage. I got Samsonite, you know, but I'm not afraid because that's made me who I am. Mm -hmm. And being able to be that way and be honest with them on the stage. Now you're communicating with them. You know, like at the, we're watching the World Series of Comedy, a lot of comics, good jokes. But I don't feel the connection. I don't feel them connecting with the audience at all. You know, There's, they want to get up there and recite their jokes because they have a time limit. Yeah. You know, and it's like, be with us. It doesn't matter the amount of lap points you get. If you're with us, there's nothing on there that says how many jokes did you do per minute on the on the judging application or the form. It's like originality, stage presence, overall performance. Those are the three criteria. But yeah, laughs per minute do matter. But are you really still connecting with us and communicating with us? But I've been doing this nine and a half years, 
and I'm just now starting to kind of open up that level of comedy. I'm, I'm just now like peeling back that layer mm-hmm. of like, oh, the personal and what's finding the emotional connection behind it. So it's like, I've been on stage a lot and I'm just now getting around to, oh yeah, emotion's important and yeah. I should tell my story and tell jokes that only I could say. And I, I try to put my jokes through a filter now of like, what can I do that someone couldn't steal really? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, mm-hmm. I try, I'm, I'm trying to put my material through that filter, but I mean, it's nine and a half well, years. Well, I've given up on know? that. <laughs> the way you've up been that. stolen yeah. a lot <laughs> lots of times and so it's like Jay Leno uh, give me a great piece of advice he says, uh, after he stole your joke yeah, exactly right <laughs> oh they also got sued lots of times for a lot of jokes being stolen wow. uh, because uh, the head writer was not a great joke writer great ad lib guy but he was uh, not a great joke writer well other but, late night shows <clears> have gone like Twitter they've been accused of stealing tweets and stuff as well they did that with uh, Conan and yeah. what what gets me is Conan at first stuck to his guns he said nope I'm going to fight this. And then they finally settled with this guy. Uh, and if the judge only knew how you write jokes, she would have seen how easy it was for him to come up, for them to come up with this parallel thought on yeah. a current event. And um, I wrote one of the jokes he was yelling about the night it happened. It was like when, when uh, the uh, Seahawks, they, uh, they threw that uh, pass play on that, uh, that third down or fourth down play at the, with two minutes, two seconds left on the clock or right. whatever it was. They threw a pass play when they had the best running back in the league. And it was like right on the goal line. And they got intercepted. Because, of course, Belichick knows that Pete Carroll is going to think he's going to run. So he's going to – he set his defense for pass, snap that ball away, and they won. Now, I said, wow, the MVP award goes to Pete Carroll. Right, right there at the, uh, at, just in my house. And that was one of the jokes this guy mm-hmm. argued. That was his original joke, you know? And uh, I didn't even tweet it because I thought it was so low-hanging fruit. Because it's just right there. And so they, Conan did a version of it. And this guy did a version of it. And it's like, but if you list, it's right there. You know, so if, if the judge knew how jokes were written, the judge would have said, no, there can be parallel thought. Mm-hmm. So... But there's a lot of people that complain about that. I have, uh, I wrote some jokes, you know, when uh, Trump said, oh, I'd go in there even if I wasn't armed about the Parkland shooting. I said, yeah, because you, you, could, you, could, you could hurt a bitch with a bone spur. That night, Stephen Colbert did two bone spur jokes, and I tweeted that. I don't think he took it from me. Right. It's right there, mm-hmm. you know? So I let him go. Like Leno said, just write more. Yes. Yeah. And writing is a muscle, and it requires a lot of reps. And the, I feel like just for people listening, like the techniques and tools we're talking about require time and repetition and writing is a muscle and the more you do it, the stronger it gets, but it is, it's going to be incremental mm-hmm. and, and part of developing the comedy muscle and we can, uh, we can land the plane with this question because this is something I ask every guest is like the an epic bombing story like getting booed on stage or i mean getting a beer bottle thrown at you if that's the one that comes to mind for you but like in your over 25 year career like do you have a show that just sticks out is just like just that gig you'll never forget let me see um i think that one was see i don't really see that beer bottle as a bomb it was going well up till then. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I did get punched in the face, too, after that, too. Um, because, uh, but I, I don't want to tell the story, because these days with this political correctness, people will see it as racist. 
because mm. it was a it was in a town. There was a, there was a table of cholos, and they were having a good time. But there was a misinterpretation between playfulness between the guys sort of ribbing each other mm-hmm. as guys do and then the, some of their ladies thought we, it was too personal and they got personal with me and called my mother a cunt mm. and so I had said a response based on factual information yes and the way I said it was inappropriate and they had no place to go so that's when the beer bottle was thrown and I deserved it uh, but um, whoa that was loud this one's breaking I in. I want to make as much noise as I can. <laughs> yeah, and that, um, that, that full story is on um, another podcast. I don't remember which one, but I, f- I came across that story in researching you. Yeah. So if someone wants to hear it, they can hear it in its entirety. On uh, If you just search Jerry Corley on the podcasts. Is everything all right? Yeah, we're in the breakfast area of a yeah, hotel uh, right now. It's interesting. Hey. Oh, hot bro. So do you have a, you have a different show that comes to mind? Um, yeah, my, uh-huh. one of the times when I, I used to, um, I heard from Seinfeld too uh, that he liked to he liked to do uh, he liked to open for bands mm. more than he liked to work with comedians. So um, and I just heard that, uh, and so I go that's so I had friends, and as a I, I played trombone in a horn band myself, I, so I knew some musicians. I had friends that had this fusion band, uh, jazz fusion band that was doing a lot of spots around L.A. So they would always call me and ask me if I wanted to come and do a spot, and I would do like their breaks. And so one time I did a break for them at this place called the Rusty Pelican, in <laughs> Calabasas. And um, so I'm doing, I do a break for them, and uh, it wasn't going well. Mm-hmm. And I could tell, I heard these, what, these three guys were standing off to the side. I hear one guy, one guy say, oh, look, he's bombing. Let's fuck with him. <laughs> so they sort of walked towards the front of the stage, and one person would yell something, and as he ran out of breath, the other person took over. And it just was not, there was no way that I was going to overcome this. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. I, uh, I said, well, it looks like you guys uh, are creating your own show. So, which probably explains why you're single. I'm going to leave. Good night. Got some laughs from a couple of people over here who are now rooting for the poor failing comic right, on the stage. Right, right. Got off stage, went to the bar and said, fuck it, I'm going to get drunk. And so I, the bartender delivered a beer, and as I'm delivering the beer, I take my tape recorder and I set it on the bar, and it's still rolling. And I go, holy shit, this is the black box of an airplane. It has all the data that led up to that crash. I said, I'm going to take this home and take every line these motherfuckers said and write a comeback to it. Wow. And I turned it off. And I said that to the recorder. And I went home and I wrote a comeback to every single line those guys said. Wow. And that's what, and then I said, that's never going to happen to me again. And so that's what I did. So it was like, that was empowering yeah. to realize that, wait a second, I've got the data right here. I can, I can write a line, a comeback to everything they said. What went wrong, do you think? Uh, I had a couple of jokes, new jokes that failed. Mm-hmm. And so they saw that as a weakness. And... This audience is not a comedy audience. Oh, this yeah. audience doesn't, is like, they're, they're, you know, you can talk while the music is playing. So, but, and all of a sudden, I'm more of an imposition to them this time. So, most of the time, it worked out well, and it, got, it really got a chance to work those chops. But this time, they just didn't want to hear from me. And um, these guys noticed it and decided to take advantage of it because they want to feel better about themselves. So, that's what happened. That's one of my favorite 
lines. Oh, look, he's bombing. Let's fuck with him. Let's fuck with him. I'll never forget that. so beautiful. (laughs) Just that epitomizes just a comedian on stage failing and just the sharks in the audience. That's so funny. Oh, so funny. But the other thing we have to understand, too, is the audience psychology, right? Um, Bobby Slayton, in a documentary called... um, uh, it's called, uh, it's, um, damn it, what, uh, Alone Up There. Interesting, okay. It's done by a Canadian filmmaker, uh, and I'm, I'm in it. He interviewed me, and I, lis- I watched the thing. Bobby Slayton's there. Bobby Slayton says, it's an us-against-them mentality. And I'm like, that's so far from the truth, mm. because we've sat in those seats, and we've watched comedian after comedian get up on the stage. What is our disposition in general? It's curiosity. Who's next? What do they got? Mm-hmm. So it's never an us against them mentality. Just knowing that stepping on the stage changes your entire psychology of what this audience is looking for. They want to laugh. They're curious. Yeah. So why would you say it's an us against them thing? Maybe that's part of his persona because he was the bulldog of comedy. Yeah. So you got to stay that bulldog guy. But it's got to be a different age for him now. This PC environment. Oh, my god. You know, I hear Seinfeld getting upset about it. All these guys going to... Well, write new jokes. Adjust. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't tell society what to do. You can sort of press against it a little bit, uh, make your complaint, but they're gonna they're gonna have that. They're gonna default to what they. That's a that's a generational thing now. You're dealing with. It's not a. It's not something you can change overnight. You know, you can mess around with them a little bit, but there. It's like doing Trump jokes. The moment you do a Trump joke, you're gonna tension up tension that room up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so it's like. Um, uh, somebody's going to want to fight you eventually. So that's what happens. That's <laughs> Throw beer bottles. I had, a, yeah, I had a guy want to fight me at the comedy store doing a Trump joke. Really? I did three, and he said wanted to fight me. So he got up, approached the stage. Oh, that must have been more recently. Yeah, that was recently. Oh, yeah. so you're still out in the... You're still yeah, out man, I love getting out. I'll go to the comedy it. store. Like I'll go to the improv. I'll oh, do cool. the ice house. I'll, I do corporates. I still... Whatever I can, I go out and do something. You know? Okay, good. Because it's like, I, I love it. I still got to connect with people, right? Got to so, sharpen the sword, too. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, there are times I'm like, I got to be doing more. I got to do... And I'm doing it at least twice a week. But it's like, you know, doing like comedy store or the improv... But to be able to go out for a week is different, you know, to be able to do a cruise. But then, you know, I can't be gone because I still have an eight. Now I have an eight-year-old at home, and my oh. wife is an airline pilot. Mm-hmm. So she's gone. I'm home, you know. So it's, uh, uh, that's got, we got to work that out. Yeah, but that is the mindset of a comedian is you see, I mean, even like Joe Rogan, multi, multi-millionaire, still on stage multiple times a week. You know, Seinfeld's exactly. still on tour. Like, as, as a comedian... I mean, you're, the stage is really, that's the laboratory. We can, right. we can write all day. you got to take it to the stage. Yeah, the audience is always the final judge. Yes. Even though you think you have 98% odds the joke is going to work, mm-hmm. there's still that 2%. You may lay something out and flatline. Yep. And then you'll ask them, why didn't you laugh at that? And they, and they usually tell you. you know? And I've, I've had comedians on here say their success rate is like 1 out of 20. But I feel, and the comedian's listening, Go to your website, go to Jerry's website, and look at the... Re- like, well, if Steve Martin says do it, right. you, you might as well go do it. We're gonna, we'll link it in the show notes to this episode as well, just so you can jump to it. But it's going to help you, like, the success of your jokes. It's going to help you write more jokes better and faster, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, and you begin to... The, the, the key is, I think, understanding why. Mm. Why it works. Mm-hmm. Once you understand why it works, you're like, oh, shit, yeah, okay, I got it. You know, mm-hmm. and you'll write a uh, John Voorhouse, 
author of The Comic Toolbox, said the rule of nine. Uh, when you write ten jokes, nine are going to suck. Get over it. But I think once you understand, I've seen in my classes, every night we do current events jokes, seven out of ten work. Whoa. Okay. Are really effective jokes. And I'm, I try to be very objective about it and go, okay, is that a good joke or just, I'm just a big fan of their, them overcoming an obstacle? Mm -hmm. And so that's a solid joke. And then also the class will laugh, right? So seven out of ten, they usually get that nail it. Some nights, six out of ten. But it's rarely one out of ten. Mm. They're usually on point more than they are not. So, uh, but then they've got to still maintain that discipline and yes. regimented practice. Yes. So every day, man. Every, every day. Every day, just like a musician. So you kids know out there watching and listening, you have your marching orders. <laughs> Do the work, all right? Do the work. You're going to want to listen to this one multiple times because there was a lot. This is... This may be the longest one we've ever done. We had fun, though. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was exciting because, I mean, I've, I've been a fan of you, and it's cool to see people sharing all this comedy information, but with the right intent, you know? Right. So before we get out of here, is there anything else you want the world to know or any closing advice you have for comedians? Um, I think you said it. Do the, it's all in doing the work. Mm. If you really love this and want to have a level of a success you got to make that commitment to do the work every day. Every day, like every day you're going to... Gene Parrott said, I, w I write every single day except for the weekends because I made my wife that promise. Mm -hmm. But he set a schedule. And I guess that's the important thing is in your date book, in your schedule, on your phone, set a schedule. I show up for work at this time. And if you don't do that, you won't. Because mm -hmm. I find that, oh, well, I'm going to wait till I'm inspired. That could be weeks <laughs> yeah. to get that right signal of inspiration rather than just sitting down creating inspiration. You know, as I do it, shit, you can sit down. My wife is like a smartphone. My wife is like a bank. And then list bank, you're going to find something in there that release or that, that relates to that. Now, my, my wife is like a bank. Oh, she always wanted me to make 24-hour deposits. So it's like that. She's like an ATM at a bank. Now you just tweak it. And it's like just finding a second element and practicing with it. And you'll find something in there that fits. Most of the comedians won't do the work. Yes. They won't. Like 2%, this is the last thing I'll share, Sunshine's Law. It's a, uh, a philosophy professor gave to my dad, and he passed to me. 2% of the population excels at their specialty. 18% hmm. are average or just above and complacent staying there. The rest of the 80% are on a declining scale of incompetence. Do you want to be acceptable or do you want to be exceptional? Jerry Corley, everyone. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For Thanks being for having on me on, breath. man. The, the timing of this was so perfect as well. So uh, please let, let the listeners know how they can keep up with you, support you. Re like my listeners, not my listeners, the hot breath of is what we call this. Like they reach out to guests. They'll reach, they'll reach out. They'll be reaching out with questions. I just had... Um, Craig Shoemaker was on here. He's great. I a love comic Craig. in San Francisco who loves the show uh, reached out to him, ended up driving to LA to meet with Craig. Like the, the Hot Breath of Ours is very engaged, and these are people who love comedy. And You've love really learning. done such a great job at creating a community, too. I mean, just listening to your seminar, I'm gonna, I got to tune in because you had Breatharians or Breath of Ours, yeah, yeah. like Brethrens. And yeah. I was just like, that's awesome. Mm. Such a good tool to use to create the community. In fact, I, was, I went back to the room and I toyed with the idea of what to apply to my sort of community, my tribe. Yeah. And 
I'm thinking as, as an angle, uh, how can we all, how can I help you all become joke doctors? Yeah. So just yeah. based on what you had said, and I saw that was so, that moved me. I said, well, I want to be a part of this community, you know, because it was so neat. That's why church is so effective mm. because it, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I love the idea of the community, you know, mm -hmm. people getting together. Uh, so uh, uh, kudos to you for that. And thank you. Thank and you. Um, yeah, man, uh, I'm very active on Twitter. Twitter is, I hate Facebook because it takes too much of my time. Okay. Although I'm starting a group now based on what you said. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, because that's... I do have a Facebook wow. group that's called Corley's Kids. Uh -huh. That's only for people that have been in my classes. But I want to open something up some more to people that are on like YouTube. And uh, I think Facebook's the better vehicle for a group certainly than twitter yeah. but people contact him contact me on twitter at at joke doctor um and i res i try to respond to everybody people ask me for advice some help uh sometimes i'll fix a joke if i have the time i'll help somebody uh, but i'm always active there because it's quick you're in you're out you can do it on the fly right uh facebook i always get distracted with other stuff um <laughs> yeah. and now next thing you know it's 90 minutes of my time out yep. the window uh, but um, definitely going to do that group. But great. Twitter is a great, great way to reach out to me. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. your website is? Uh, StandupComedyClinic.com. Okay, cool. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, Jerry Corley, I feel like our communities have a lot of parallels and overlap. Without a doubt. Yeah, so I'm hoping this is not the, uh, the first of many times we can oh, this is gonna be This is going to be synergistic. I could yeah. tell when you were up there, I go, oh, we're going to have a good relationship. Because he's got a good philosophy yeah. that uh, helping people. And it's like, this will be fun. Yeah, I was yeah. a little nervous with you. and I was excited you, you stayed because I, I just watched yours a few hours earlier. I was like, oh, man, he does this professionally. I was a little nervous that you were sitting there and, like, I didn't know if you were listening or just like, well, let's just see what this kid, this kid's all about. No, I was but watching, going, watching going, well, he's an asshole. No, <laughs> yeah. no, it was like, I still don't know why he said that, man. I will Every, I've never, what was neat about him saying that? No, you're being an asshole. I'm serious. You're being an asshole. And because I've never seen a room full of com comics be, be bewildered at the same time. What? What? What's he doing? This? Seriously. He's just being a comic, you know? And some comics were like trying to speak up and I was trying to be like, it's okay. Hey, it's okay. I'm up here. I can control this. But it, I, I'll, uh, I'll put the link to that episode in the show notes because I was recording the whole thing. It, yeah. And you can listen to it and hear it for yourself. Yep. Great. All right. Jerry Corley, thanks for being on Hot Breath, my man. My pleasure. Woo. Oh, my God. A lot of fun. Oh, man. That was, that was a marathon. That Holy was shit. fire. All right, Hot breath averse. thanks for hanging out on this comedy writing marathon. If you found this as helpful as I did, please reach out to Jerry. Let him know the Hot breath averse heard his tips, and we are putting them to work. And if you'd like to work with me personally, I do Skype sessions. I also do set reviews. I also have my own comedy writing book that shares all my favorite joke formulas. My whole mission is just to provide resources for comedians that I wish I had starting out. So whatever that is for you, reach out to me. I'd love to help you out. Also, reach out to Jerry. He's very helpful as well. He's very responsive on social media. And let's all get better together. That, by the way, that podcasting workshop I did that we were talking about in this episode where I was getting heckled, that is in uh, linked in the show notes. That's actually on the Hot Breath Patreon page where I post extra educational content and I'll post episodes early on there but it, in 10 years of comedy it was one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had on stage so 
Hopefully we won't have any more of those, but it was worth getting to the interview with Jerry. So let's go forth now. We all have our work to do. If you want to connect with me or other listeners from around the world, we do have a private Facebook group. Just get on Facebook, search Hot Breath Comedy Network, and you can start connecting with me and listeners from around the world. A lot of good discussions about comedy going on in there. So I wonder how many times I can say so in this outro. So I'm going to go so you can go do your own writing. So okay. All right. Anyway, go forth, hot brethren and sistren. You now have some homework to do, as do I. So thank you to my wife, of course, Erin Byers. I thank her at the end of all these. And thank you to you. And until next Monday, right here on Hot Breath. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.